Black Velvet Fairies is a fantasy supernatural thriller podcast from the makers of The Blair Witch Project and one of the producers of Lord of the Rings. The podcast tells the story of a woman whose grandmother leaves her black velvet paintings of fairies. But not twinkly little sprites. These are grim warriors, kings and queens. As she investigates her family's history with the artwork, disturbing dreams and unexplained encounters pull her toward a dark and dangerous fairy world that some believe is real. Episodes drop on Tuesdays wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Fantasy Fangirls Podcast, where two sisters dive deep into beloved fantasy lore, carriage themes, theories, and more. Thank you for joining us for our last Iron Flame deep dive episode. We are covering chapters 64 through 66, aka The End of Iron Flame by Rebecca Yaris today. But before we begin this deep dive finale, please listen closely to our content warning. Most importantly, spoilers for all of Iron Flame because, well, we're talking about the end here today. If you haven't finished the book, this is just not the episode for you. Please just go listen to the audiobook instead if you need something to listen to. We will be here when you're done with about 13 episodes for you to catch up on. Next, this podcast is rated R. We, a fantasy fangirls, are adults who say adult things with adult words about an adult book. Look, Our shadow daddy makes a choice and we have some feelings about it. And I can guarantee those feelings will come with cussing. So please be mindful of little listening ears. And last thing before we jump into our Iron Flame episode 13. If you've gotten to the end of Iron Flame and you're like, hey, I can't wait for the Akatar deep dives that you guys are starting at the end of February. And I want more content, more community connection, discounts on merch, early access to ad-free episodes while supporting the fantasy fangirls and making the stream our livelihood. Please check out our Patreon. We have two membership tiers, Cadets and Dragon Riders. However, those names are changing very, very soon for Akatar. And our Patreon community is so incredible and active. We have four events this month, including the new book club, Reading Divine Rivals. The link to join our Patreon is in the show notes or YouTube captions. And really and truly, thank you so much for helping us bring these episodes to you. It means so much that you've been with us on this journey to episode 13 of Iron Flame. And now it is time to turn Venom! Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Nicole, please do us the honor of the final battle brief, a.k.a. your summary of what happens in chapters 64 through 66, a.k.a. the end of Iron Flame. Man, I'm going to miss battle brief. It'll be called something different for Akatar, but I'm going to miss battle brief. <laughs> the name of it is just so perfect. Chapter 64. We're right back into the action and the worst has yet to come. After dropping the world's shortest info bomb of letting Violet know that the Venom are actually waiting for Zayden, Violet asks her cryptic shadow daddy, would you rather me ward Bezgaeth or Erasia? Without hesitating, Zayden says, ward wherever Violet his home is. My fucking heart! These two say not a goodbye, but instead I see you later. All of the while, the sage not a sage is descending slowly and dramatically to the ground. He loves to make an entrance! Violet sprints Sonic the Hedgehog style to the wardstone chamber where Brennan has resurrected the stone. Too soon? I think so. Violet begins pouring her entire self into the wardstone to imbue it back to life. 
life. But our girl is good at multitasking because her youngest dragon swoops in to give her the biggest info download of the book. Turns out Andarna is a badass queen who waited 650 years to hatch as part of her secret seventh breed of dragon. But why did she hatch, you ask? Oh, because she was eavesdropping on the elders saying that there was a girl who would be the head of the scribes. But Andarna knew, she knew that this girl was destined to be her match. Who's that girl? It's Violet. Quickly, Violet's learning that homegirl is tapped out and she will die. Unsurprisingly, our self-sacrificing people pleaser doesn't think twice about throwing herself into the metaphorical iron flame fire and draining herself almost to the dregs. But who enters the wardstone chamber? It's I'm gonna drop kick my daughter Lilith Sorengale. Lilith kicks a near to death Violet away from the wardstone and recruits our favorite siphon Sloan to help her imbue the stone. Violet, in hopes of getting Zayden to talk some sense into the situation, opens up the connection with her shadow daddy and feels a hopeless and helpless Zayden on the other end. Hmm, I'm sure nothing bad could come of that. But Lilith begins to fade and with some actual vulnerable and kind words to her children, she and her dragon Imser fall, but not before finalizing the imbuing of the stone. A devastated Violet and Brennan weep over their dead mother and who walks in but a what did you do? Mira, leave it to the two siblings to raise absolute hell and then the third sibling walks into the horror show and threatens to tell mom. Ooh, that was definitely too soon. Everyone is dragged out of the wardstone chamber so the dragons can light it up and a wave of power rushes past them. The wards rise and on top of the stone is the last remainder of Lilith Sorengale, an iron flame. Chapter 65, it's rain and wyvern. Hallelujah, it's rain and wyvern. It's not as catchy, but it's just as exciting. The wards have risen. Huzzah, huzzah, huzzah. But it's not all smiles, rainbows, and butterflies. Our Sorengale trio is horrified by the death of their mother and each of them go their separate ways. Brennan off to give orders, Violet off to hug her squad leader, and Mira just off. Yes, we will be talking about it. We learn that all of Second Squad lives minus Sawyer's leg. And there's only one more thing to do to feel at ease. Lay eyes on Zayden and Taren. I guess fuck you, Sigale. Violet heads out to the battlefield that is littered with wyvern and dragons and riders. Oh my! But then she turns to her shadow daddy, who is acting quite strange, specifically not looking her way. Violet tells Zayden that her mother has died and that Melgren wants them back at Bezgaith, to which he agrees. Because with them under the wards, Violet will be less scared. Nervous, Violet wonders what all on earth can possibly scare her after all of this? Be careful what you wish for, Violet. Slowly, like painfully slowly, Zayden looks her way and he's high! Wait, no, he just has a red rim around his eyes for other reasons. Zayden has turned Fennin! Chapter 66. It's time for a zaddy POV. We're in a dream, an oddly familiar dream. Zayden is suspended in midair and facing off with the main Venon from his dreams. And the Venon is fucking taunting him, giving him the last opportunity to turn to the dark side. But Zayden, in a very Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone voice, says, Never! But the Venon has one more bad guy info drop. Sage? Not a sage. I'm a general. Say what? Honestly, I feel like this was slightly directed to the fantasy fangirls. But this general pulls some major reverse psychology and taunt Zayden one step further. Zayden's gonna die at his hands and then he will go and kill Violet. And that's just enough to tip our shadow daddy over the edge. Feeling an immense amount of power beneath the ground, Zayden begins pulling from the source and jolts awake. Not a dream, but a memory. But luckily, the nightmares are over and his girl Violet is asleep next to him in bed. Aw, so cute. Zayden's got some stuff he's gotta figure out and he knows just the person to help him. 
Sneaking out of bed and heading down to the cells beneath Bezgaeth, Zayden stands right in front of Jack fucking Barlow. Zayden, using his big scary wing leader voice, asks Jack fucking Barlow how to cure Venonhood. But there is no cure. There is only craving more and more power. And with an eerie welcome to the fucked up family, it looks like these two are brothers now. I did not sign up for this version of the Brady Bunch. End of Iron Flame. Nicole, thank you so much as always for your battle briefs. Ah, I still can't believe we reached the end of Iron Flame. And you know, this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We could not have come this far in our podcasting journey without the help of our spouses and those around us. And with that support comes a lot of communication and overcoming some new challenges. There's a common misconception about relationships that they have to be easy to be right. But sometimes the best ones happen when both people put in the work to really make them great. Therapy can be a place to work through those challenges you face in all of your relationships, whether with friends, sisters, work, your significant other, or anyone else. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited for your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. If you need to switch therapists, no problem, and it's no additional charge. Become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit betterhelp.com FFG today to get 10% off on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash F-F-G. All right, friends, let's don our signet power one more time before book three comes out, where we dive into key insights, analysis, foreshadowing, and our favorite theories. Okay, you might want to buckle up here for this one, everyone, too. It's going to be a doozy. And I also just want to say before we completely dive in here, while we pack as much as we can into this final episode, there are naturally going to be a few points and theories that we just aren't able to cover. So if we don't get to a few things, keep the conversations going in our comment sections. Keep an eye out for more content and predictions in the lead up to book three, hopefully later this year. We'll stay tuned for the timing on that or on social media where we'll keep sprinkling in Empyrean coverage. Let's kick it off with a quick nod to chapter 64's epigraph that perfectly tees up this heart-wrenching chapter. It's recovered correspondence from our dear sweet Liam to his sister Sloane, telling her about Violet and how Sloane will love her. And Liam asks Sloane to remember that Violet is not her mother. This small mention of Liam sets us up for this book's big death. And this correspondence from Liam revolves around Sloane, Violet, and Lilith, all of whom are major players in this chapter. I just, ah, I love these epigraphs, especially the ones, again, like I was saying, just perfectly tee up what is going to happen in the chapter without revealing too much. I really do wonder if we're going to get more from Liam's letters to Sloane, or if we're going to get just like more Liam in general, or if this book was the last time us seeing Liam or hearing from him through Mm. these different letters for Sloane. I'm hoping not, but I also don't want to think of a situation that Violet would be in where she needs to see Liam again because the last one did not go well for her. Speaking of things that are not really going well, let's do a quick recap on how screwed our crew is. The second wave of Venon and Wyvern are about to attack. The head Venon, aka the sage, not a sage, Maven, and his crew are waiting for Zayden. Why? We truly don't know, but Zayden does. Violet laments that they have held almost all of their dark wielders back for wave two. Like, we need to stress how 
royally fucked our crew is right now. The battlefield is littered with wyvern and dragon corpses alike, and the only injured among our crew right now are Iotrum, which is Riddick's dragon, and Sawyer, who is missing a leg. Okay, so now that we know what the playing field looks like, let's take it back to Violet and Zayden at the opening of this chapter, right after he drops a bombshell bit of info that the Venon are waiting for him. We talked about this at length in our previous episode, so we won't touch too much on it here as Zayden and Violet's conversation continues, where she, understandably, asks how he knows the Venon are waiting for him. And Zayden explains that he, the Dark Wielder who is a general, not a sage, in case you didn't pick up on that last episode where we had to do some major correcting for ourselves, thought that they were going to be at Samara. And when Violet asks again how Zayden knows that, he says, do us both a favor and don't ask. For a guy who's all about, give me all the questions, this is one where he's like, nope, stop. We do not have time for this right now. We speculated how Zayden knows this. Is it via dream communications? Did he read the Dark Wielder's intentions, whether in a dream or facing off against each other previously off page? Is Zayden even able to read Venon's intentions and use his intrinsic signet against them in the same way he can with others? I have to wonder that because Kat is able to use her mind work on the Venon who when she goes all crazy like, ah, you know? And so I would assume Zayden can also use his intrinsic power for Venon. However, is he able to against the general? We don't know that. You'd think that this general would have quite the shield up to prevent such a thing, but Who knows? Here are the three speculations that personally I've come up with. Number one is Zayden read General Maven's intentions just now. As all this is happening, General Maven is just slowly descending down into the earth. Like I I picture that so vividly and I can't see it without just cracking up. I don't think that this is a thing because Zayden says, do yourself a favor and don't ask. He would have told her in their mind to mind connection, hey, I just read his intentions and it's not looking good for us. I also do believe that if General Maven is as old as he we think he is like you know we do think that he is General Daramore he's over 600 years old in that case and he would probably be pretty damn good at shielding to your point Lex option two General Maven said in one of Zayden's dreams like you said earlier that he knows that Zayden is honorable or something to make him believe that the generals read on Zayden's character this is the one I'm most leaning towards because of Zayden's don't ask he probably doesn't want to stop and be like well you know a love of my life I've been having these really scary dreams where like I'm suspended in the air and this event is da da da. I do reprimand their communication because both of them have not mentioned that they are having these types of dreams and that seems like something you probably should tell your partner or honestly maybe Zayden thinks he's losing his fucking mind having these dreams and he like thinks that this is some kind of prophecy and he's scared to share that with Violet because he doesn't want to freak her out so I'll give him that and I'll give Violet the same in return now option three is just Zayden's got more secrets he's got more things up his sleeves again I don't think that this is the case given the promises that he made to Violet in the sparring gym literally just a few chapters ago that I'm going to bring up later but Those are really the only three I can come up with. I personally actually think that it's leaning more towards option three. Because it is very much of a, like, we don't have time for this, don't ask. But there's also a, I got some shit to tell you, and now's not a good time. And I think that is a little bit more like a secret. And I think that would be more conflict than him actually turning Venon. Is that, oh my gosh, if in book three, we still get the same argument between them about him keeping secrets and her not being able to trust it. I don't know if I can handle it. (laughs) 
I don't think that'll happen. I personally do not. I, what if it actually, what if in this case, it's a mixture of two and three? Like, I think that's yes, it. He's yeah. He's been having these dreams and he's been like losing his fucking cord. I think it's more of the secret is the connection between him and the venom. There is a deeper but connection. Has the same con- oh, okay. Okay. There There's is a, a deeper connection, connection the between the venom and Zayden that goes deeper than Zayden has shared. And it's not just this venom going into his dreams and like just kind of being like the surface level, sort of how it is just for Violet. But I think that there is another level further about why specifically this is happening with Zayden. Why are they after Zayden? And it's not so much the how he knows, which is the dream communication, but it is the more why behind it. Okay, yeah, I can hop on board with that. I'm afraid for the more Zayden secrets, and I really don't want that to be true, but... Unfortunately, I do think that I'm going to be out on that one. So <laughs> This also raises the question about when Zayden learned this plan from the general, knowing that he expected the Arisha crew to do the honorable thing and be at Samara there. Did Zayden know the general expected them to go to Samara before the assembly voted, where Zayden voted and lost to go to Samara's aid? Or did he only find out the general expected them to go to Samara after they were already on their way to Biscayth? I don't know. The timeline with that is a little bit confusing. Now that Violet knows the ultimate secret to raise the wards, she gives Zayden the choice, raise the wards here at Biscayth or at Arisha, his home. Because as far as we're aware, and according to the first six's journals, each dragon can only breathe fire on one wardstone, which means only one wardstone can be activated since there's only one in Darna of the seventh den. While there's definitely more to the story we don't know yet, this right here solves the mystery about why Arisha's wardstone was never activated. My guess is that the first six created it and planned to activate it, but the seventh dragon breed left before participating in this. We'll dive way more into that shortly here. It's so sweet and so on character for Violet to give this choice to Zayden. As she says, I can never take that choice from you. He has dedicated his life to Arisha and the revolution and protecting the innocent. So it makes sense for Violet to ask him this, but I have to poke the tiniest bit of fun at Violet anyway, because everyone is literally going to die and the continent is doomed if she doesn't raise the words right here right fucking now at Biscayeth. Like Zayden smartly says, and if we all die here today, then the knowledge dies with us anyway, Ward Biscayeth. And it's like, ah, thank you for speaking for all of us. Huzzah, Zayden, huzzah. Right before he says his, you know, Ward Biscayeth line, he says, you are my home. And he says for her to ward where home is. And it's just like, oh, I love it. Swoon, swoony. (laughs) I do wonder if they're going to continue, however, half warding Erasia, like using the other dragons almost on a assembly line basically but to that point aren't there are only two black dragons right Correct. there's coda and Taren. so i don't think that would work very well but i do wonder what's gonna happen in erasia if they're just like mm, fucked we are going to speculate on that a lot more in a little while during this episode. I will say, however, on the note of there being two black dragons, yes, that is correct. But Taryn did say that there were two black dragon hatchlings, or at least perceived to be black dragons, according to Coda. So it will be, I'll say, at least three years before these other black dragons are able to breathe fire. But that is potentially in the long-term plan. I know we'll be talking about this more in a minute, but if there are more of Indarna's seventh breed of dragon, 
then they could potentially ward, like full ward, Erasia also in that, you know, three to five year timeline. We will definitely talk about that later. All right. <laughs> I love how Violet then turns to Coda, who is bigger and badder than Taryn and notably one of the few dragons who aren't afraid of him. And she says, I need to talk to you. And Zayden, of all people, Zayden is the one who says, holy fuck, Violet, about her demanding to talk to Coda. Remember throughout both books, Zayden is the only person who doesn't seem phased by the dangers and scariness of dragons. It's like he knows that he's invincible with them because he's so powerful and bonded to a powerful dragon who the other dragons don't want to fuck with. But even he doesn't dare what Violet just did with Coda. That really just shows how big of a deal this is, what Violet just did talking to Coda. Violet accuses, accuses Coda that he knows about Andarna being the secret seventh breed. How does Coda even know about Andarna in the first place, you ask? Only the elders can infer what color dragon hatchlings will grow up to be. We can assume they are gold, and this is not unique to Andarna, but rather all hatchlings are golden feather tails. Again, that is an assumption, but based on context, we think that's right. And Andarna confirms that only the elders know about her secret, whether from the same line of reasoning that when she was a golden hatchling, that they could know what her color was going to be, or because the secret of the seventh den's protected egg is passed down from dragon generation to dragon generation and only among the elders. Therefore, Coda being the elder of the black dragons knows her secret. That's how Coda knows her secret and only him, because remember, Taryn does not know. He thinks that she's a black dragon. Zayden and Violet have a hasty goodbye as they part ways. He's trying to say goodbye and she's like, nope, we're not doing that. <laughs> because he plans to fight the Venon up above ground and she is going to go down below where the Wardstone chamber is located to raise the wards. I'm quoting this entire fucking thing because it's perfect and because I can. Quote, you and I both know you can't raise the wards and stay to fight. When you were in Resin, I held them back while you fought and I trusted you to handle yourself. Now trust me to handle myself while you get the wards up before more people die end this. He kisses me hard and quick and then looks at me like this will be the last time he ever sees me. I love you. Ah! Yeah. Now, I love this for, obviously, many reasons, but here are my top two. Number one, Violet's got some micromanagement issues hardcore. And I love that he calls them out and he says, trust me to do my best. I trusted you to do your best in that moment. And number two, Violet thinks that when she hears the goodbye in his tone, she is like, Absolutely not. We're not doing this here. But she is saying goodbye to the Zayden that she knows because this is the last time that she will ever see Zayden, not a Venon Zayden. He is after this going to be Venonified Zayden. And I guarantee you that's going to come with some differences in personality traits. Really? Oh, we're going to be talking about so. that more later, too. Oh, I can't uh, wait. Nicole, you quoting like half of these last few chapters are why this episode is going to be five hours long. You're welcome. <laughs> And then, run, Violet, run! So for a few episodes now, I have been teasing the fact that I read this, you know, second half of this book and was not really ever the biggest distance wielder on that train. The reason that I have not been super on this train is because Rebecca Yaris has been very vocal about Violet's second signet being on the page. And she does expect us readers to figure it out. And many, many, many readers were mentioning distance wielding, but I didn't really see it on the page. That is until I reread this sequence. Here is the scene. Violet is 
sprinting to the Wardstone chamber after saying her not a goodbye to Zayden. And I'm reading this whole fucking passage because I want this episode to be five hours long, Lexi, but because it is very important and it has so many hints, much to Lexi's chagrin. <laughs> Quote, my arms pump and I force my legs to move despite the jarring pain in my knees. I run through the courtyard, dodging infantry squads and run up the central steps. I run through the open door and down the hall with a pounding heart and burning lungs. Run like I've been training for it since Resin. Number one, move is in italics. Remember, she says, I force my legs to move. There has been multiple clues for us in both of these books where things are in italics or blatantly not in italics that lean into a signet or signet-esque clues. So the fact that I force my legs to move is in italics feels a little sus to me. Number two, Violet running in the morning. If Rebecca foreshadowing all this time, you know, in part one, that Violet running in the morning was going to be distance wielder clues, I just think that is fucking masterful. Now, moving on to the next passage. Quote, I run because I couldn't save Liam, couldn't save Soleil, but I can save the rest of them. I can save him. Number three, signets manifest when there is a great need for the writer. Violet signet manifested in the snow, yes, with Zayden, but it fully manifested when she was trying to save Liam by, you know, ending Jack on a mountain. I don't think that this moment can be taken any other way, but a great fucking need. This is not only for Liam, Soleil, but it's of course for Zayden. Next passage, quote, as soon as it opens up, so do I, pushing myself harder than I ever have, racing down the rest of the tunnel and into the wardstone chamber lit by morning light. Only then do I skid to a halt and brace my hands on my knees, breathing deeply to keep from puking. This opening up language is very sus to me when it comes to distance building. When we think about power in fantasy, it does come with this like opening up feeling. Plus, quote, skid to a halt. I can totally see when you're distance wielding, this being the feeling when it's time to reach your effing destination. You're like, skirt skid to a halt. Plus, in other worlds where distance wielding-esque like magic is at play, they mention often how it makes people want to hurl when they experience it. Violet in this passage mentions that she's breathing deeply to keep from puking and she mentions that nausea and puking is on her mind a few times in the next page or so. Then she makes it to the Wardstone Chamber, which contains Brennan and Arik, the latter of which says, damn Soringale, I don't think I've ever seen you run that fast. Arik saying that he has never seen someone run that fast feels pretty on the fucking nose to me when it comes to distance wielding. Then she and Brennan talk about the Wardstone Chamber for a minute and Violet raises her hand to it. This is where... This is what changed me right here. Quote, my fingers tingling painfully like they just had circulation restored after a lengthy period of numbness. After a lengthy period of numbness. This fucking quote right here is what did it for me. If she distance wielded even just a little ways, that period of numbness would have been quite literally her traveling. However, I'm also going to throw another curveball into the signet here as possibilities because we've mentioned numerous times in this podcast the idea of an Uno reverse second signet or the reflection signet. Basically where she takes another person's signet and just reflects it back almost like she is Kirby from Super Smash Bros. But wait, we don't know of any distance wielders, Nicole. And yes, that is true. However, Lexi and I have been absolutely open about the fact that Arik's signet could be manifested as a distance wielder. Now, given the fact that he was also the one who said, I've never seen you run that fast, it would also be like that perfect little chef's kiss moment. So while maybe his signet has not manifested for him, she was still able to uno reverse it in that moment. If she was distance wielding, he would have been at the destination, not when she started. So that would really call into question how like the distance that she can Uno reverse with somebody signet. True. 
Very true. And that's a good point. We don't know her radius of Uno reversing, if that is the case. I think that's a fun theory. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not done. (laughs) But Nicole, you might be asking, isn't running fast a lesser magic? Yes, that is true. But there's a reason Rebecca Yaros didn't say, I use my lesser signet of running fast or, you know, a more poetic way of saying that. Could it have been implied? Maybe, but that doesn't really feel like something Rebecca Yaris would do given her writing style, especially in a big pivotal moment for a character like this. So all of this to say, here are my thoughts. Personally, I think that this would be a really cool manifestation of a second segment of distance wielding. I do like this idea of her being a distance wielder for this reason right here. I much more prefer the idea of it being an Uno reverse signet, just because I think that's very much in alignment with Rebecca's writing style. However, you bring up a really good point of how big is that radius? (laughs) Violet, we don't know. Is this a possibility of distance wielding? Maybe. I'm excited if it is, but I do think that there are other second signet clues in this book that lean a little bit more away from distance wielding, and that distance wielding is instead going to be showing up in another character for us. I think she was just running really fast. I also do love the idea of Violet being a distance wielder, and I will say that is one of the most popular second signet theories for her specifically exhibited from this. And Nicole laid out some great supporting evidence. I do also think that all of the supporting evidence that for distance wielding could also be just for running really fast. I want to puke and my body feels all tingly after I've just run the fastest I've ever run in my entire life. But again, I, I absolutely agree with you that I love this idea. And I do think that we will see distance wielding, but in another character. I don't know why you and I are both like so gung ho on it being Arik, but like I really like if I had to say it was going to be any other character, I would definitely say Arik, like really and truly. This running sequence follows her through Bezgaeth and the passages as she presses on. If she was a distance wielder, wouldn't she just like show up near the Wardstone chamber? It's not like that she like distance wielding doesn't mean that you go really fast, it's that you apparate or that you're winnowing or that you're teleporting, it, you know, however you want to say the semantics of it. I do agree yes I'm keeping my mind open because this does feel like a very big like you know theatric moment for our character where it did feel like that big dramatic moment and yes it definitely could have been just that full circle moment from when she was running at Bezgaeth because she was so afraid and this time she's actually running towards something rather than running away from something and kind of that poetry of that I love that and I could see this as definitely a distance wielding hint, like wink, wink, hint, hint. But I do want to pull a little bit of a 90 degree turn and just pull out a side note from this passage because Violet says, quote, I can save him, meaning Zayden. Him is in italics. When we see he, him pronouns in italics in the story, it has always been discussing the sage, not a sage equals a general. And again, this is tying Zayden to the venom. And I just, it's just so small, but it's just such a good chef's kiss moment. Violet asks Andarna to get down to the chamber and Andarna says I'm not fond of pits and Violet interrupts with a now Violet interrupting again I swear to god but I do wonder why isn't Darna why isn't Darna not a fan of pits I was wondering the same thing and I imagine it's a small hint at her trauma from the caves where she killed Solus to protect her rider. You know, we never really get much from Andarna about the weight that this bears on her soul. Remember what Taryn was saying about how it really does affect a dragon and their soul when they kill another dragon. And maybe this is a hint to that, like a small little hint to that. So that, that like I had to think about it and I was like, oh, pits, maybe the caves. Oh, she was traumatized in the caves and we haven't really gotten much since then about what her thought process is about all of that. 
I think that'll be a huge part of book three is like Andarna dealing with that and then also dealing with the fact that now her other bonded dragon and her writer now know this huge big secret and they're trying to figure it out. Well, actually, okay, so Nicole, speaking of who is with Violet in the cave, I've been wondering since that episode, how do the Griffin Flyers all speak the Navarian common language? Like, how do you think that they learned it? I do know that a really great way to learn a new language is by immersion, aka living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's understandably not in the cards for you, just like it's not in the cards for our Griffin Flyers here who cannot go to Navarre long enough to be immersed because they literally can't use power and they'd probably die, there is a second best way to learn a language that you want to speak so badly, and that's with Babbel, the app that our Griffin Flyers absolutely used to get Navarian down. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real life situations with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned out in the real world. Our dad has been actually using Babbel. He's been a super user of Babbel for the past year plus and he absolutely loves how it helps him learn real life conversation skills in easy to follow courses. He was so proud of his ability to speak Italian when he traveled there last fall, whether it was with ordering food or giving directions or checking into their hotel. He was so excited that he got to use this language that he learned. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription. But again, only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FF. Get 50% off at babbel.com slash FF. That's spelled babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FF. Rules and restrictions may apply. Lexi, we've made it. 13 motherfucking episodes. We have made it to here. And wow, one of I, I want to just bring it back. I want to just bring it back real quick. We're going to stroll down memory lane for a second because one of our first like big viral videos was Lexi speculating about Andarna being royal. And boom, here we learned that, well, not royal like king slash queen sense. She is the head of her den in a special lost dragon breed sense of way. And the most important paragraph in this entire fucking book happens right here. And you, you're allowed to read this passage because it is the most important one. Yes, You're you have welcome. my permission to read this one. <laughs> Thanks, older sister. I, I appreciate your permission. <laughs> Quote, I waited 650 years to hatch, waited until your 18th summer when I heard our elders talk of the weakling daughter of their general. The girl forecasted to become the head of the scribes, and I knew you would have the mind of a scribe and the heart of a writer. You would be mine. You are unique as I am. We want the same thing things. And Violet says back to her, you couldn't have known I would be a writer. And Darna responds with, and yet here we are. What? <laughs> Lexi, take it away. Ah! <laughs> take it away. <laughs> like about to burst at the seams here. Okay, so how did she know? I, d- I don't actually know the answer to that, but I swear this question has like broken the internet and it's going to break me right now in this chair as I'm just like freaking <laughs> out here. So to be clear, and Darna chose to hatch when Violet turned 18 and Violet wouldn't know herself that she was going to be a writer for another one and a half years. Remember that Loth pulled Violet out of training for the scribes and made her start training for the 
writer's quadrant six months before her conscription day because she knew that Violet would learn the truth and want to do the right thing and she would inevitably be killed for it if she stayed on course to become a scribe. So Lola figured it's better to give her daughter a chance at the writer's quadrant where she'd at least have the opportunity to live if she survived graduation. Again, this brings us back to the question of how Andarna knew Violet would be a writer a year and a half before Violet made the switch and knew herself. While we have absolutely no idea, Andarna is only scratching the surface of this gigantic iceberg of information right now because they are in quite a bit of a hurry. Let's throw around a few ideas, theories about how and what Andarna knows. Number one, Violet is central to a prophecy and Andarna recognized that she would be the one to fulfill it and therefore that's why she decided it is finally time for her to hatch because she knows she'll be needed as Violet's bonded dragon to fulfill a prophecy together. There's a lot of other supporting evidence that Violet is key to a prophecy throughout these books, even though there hasn't been any mention of a prophecy in the series so far, like whatsoever. One of the many supporting evidences is the way that the Venon are obsessively wanting Violet to, and the way that the Venon is almost prophesizing in her dream as well. I'm not going to go down the prophecy rabbit hole too much right now because we could get very lost down there, but I do think that Violet fulfilling a prophecy is very likely and also very on point for the fantasy genre. Prophecies and fantasy go hand in hand together, folks. Okay, so now moving on to number two possibility. And darn a straight up guest that the daughter of the general would also become a writer. I think this is unlikely because where's the deliciousness in that storytelling? But I just had to throw it out as a possibility that this is technically all by chance and Andarna is just a smart cookie who took a guess. <laughs> okay, now that we got that one out of the way here, number three, and I hope you all know what I'm about to say here, folks. Papa Sorengale plays a key part in all of this. There is a previous exchange in Iron Flame where Varish says it's ironic that Violet's father was writing a book on feather tails, a kind of dragon that hasn't been seen in hundreds of years, and then Violet ends up bonded to one. Violet asks Taryn and Andarna if this is indeed a coincidence, and Taryn says he knows nothing of her father's research. But, and I quote, Andarna has gone silent. What? What? Breathe, Lexi. And Darna hatched around the same time that Papa Sorengale died. His heart gave out more than a year before Fourth Wing starts, meaning he probably died within months of Indarna hatching. I still don't know how or if he would know Violet would become a writer because he kept training her to become a scribe up until his death. That was always the plan. Maybe he said that his daughter had the mind of a scribe, but the heart of a writer, even though he knew that she was going to become a scribe, since Lilith has also said a very similar thing too, and that's how the elders kind of know that same phrase there, right? I will say this. This is a theory hill that I will die on. You all know I don't have many where I stand firmly in the theory camp, especially after all of my trauma from Jack fucking Bartlow and Fourth Wing. I don't know how, but Papa Sorengale and his research is absolutely tied to Indarna and the timing of her hatching. These two are connected and how to defeat the Venon is also connected to his research because Indarna is the key to defeating the Venon. But Indarna knows that Violet is too, which is why I'm sprinkling in some of the prophecy possibility in here too. So if I had to guess, I would say Andarna knows that Violet would become her writer even before Violet knew based on Papa Sorengale, somehow, some way, and a prophecy. This is delicious. I love this so much. 
But Lexi, there's also the quote, it was why I was left behind line. And my question for you that we kind of teased earlier, but it's time to dive in now is, do you think that there are other seventh breed dragons running around, perhaps in the fucking Isle Kingdoms? I have a wild theory, Lexi. Are you ready? My crack theory. Are you ready for it? Oh, I always love your crack theories. Let's hear it. (laughs) What if Zayden's mom bonded a seventh breed of dragon on the Isle Kingdoms? They say you end up with people like your parents. You know, you've said crazier theories. (laughs) I can't fault you for that. That's true. Uh, The way that Andarna says she was left behind and that there was a second wardstone made, presumably because the first six did think that they were going to have enough dragons to activate it, and then they didn't have enough dragons. I'm inclined to think that the seventh dragon breed did indeed leave, not die out. Did they go back to where they originated from? And if that's the case, where did they originate from? I really do love the idea of the Isle Kingdoms, but let's have some fun with other possibilities here too. Was the Vale and Darna's second home, like we speculated from a line she says in Fourth Wing, because she was brought there when Navarre unified and the seventh dragon den sacrificed their original hatching grounds like the other dragons did as well. Maybe the seventh dragon den was originally in the Barrens and there's a connection there to why she is able to roast a venom with her dragon fire and it's another connection to that secret weapon to killing the venom because they all came from the same place and then the dragons did leave before the barons was sucked dry of life and magic i don't think that they're still in the barons but i kind of am thinking that indarna's den originated in the barons this world we also have to think is much larger than just this continent did this seventh dragon breed travel to a different continent my guess though is also on the isle kingdoms both because it's our fun catch-all joke but also because how cool would that be? I definitely do foresee that we encounter more of the seventh dragon breed way later in the series. I'm talking like maybe book five, if they are still around at all. I do think that the Isle Kingdoms, not, yes, it is our funny catch-all joke, but I do think it does make the most sense. Like there have been so many mentions of these Isle Kingdoms in this book. And we've been joking about like, oh, we'll definitely go there. Maybe that's where Mama Ryerson or Mama Zayden is hanging out. But The fact that there's been so many mentions of them in this book would also be the perfect tie and that's where the seventh breed of dragon is hanging out. I do agree with you that it will not be for a while, like book four or five. Like I could see the cliffhanger of book four being something along these lines. But I I do think the Isle Kingdoms does make storytelling sense here for that to be where these seventh breed of dragons are hanging out. And that's if they're hanging out anywhere. Right? So I think they are. You think they are? I I do because she doesn't say they died out. She She doesn't doesn't say died out anywhere. No, no, it's that she was left, which makes me definitely, yeah, I think that they are around somewhere, definitely, now that I think about it. So as much as we could keep talking about Andarna forever and ever, let's wrap up this Andarna conversation on a recap of what we know. Andarna is the seventh breed of dragon and the only one of her kind, again, that we know of here in Navarre. Therefore, that makes her the head of her den. That is why she was able to bond so young. There was no other dragon of her den to argue against her right of benefaction. The right of benefaction is like the dragon's version of preparing to bond with a writer. And remember how when she gave her full name to Violet at Threshing, she did not include a descendant line like Taryn did. And that was why we initially thought that she was royal, which gosh, I love when we're right in some way. It's because she doesn't have one. Her lineage faded 
separated from all others' memories generations ago. So she does not have that same lineage like all of the other dragon dens do. And Darna is also not one color like the other dragons, but rather she's like a chameleon who can become any of her surrounding colors. Her power visually manifests as pearlescent in Violet's archives and the power strands when she's weaving runes. She can also blend in with her surroundings. She can choose to be a color like black or even turn purple, like a shimmering purple. So again, we don't have an exact color because she is not an exact color. So we're just going to call her a chameleon. Only the dragon elders, presumably of the other six dens, know that Indarna was this other breed. Like I said earlier, Taryn didn't even know. He has been under the impression she is a black dragon. By the end of this book, Violet demands Taryn and Indarna catch up, meaning she has to fill him in on her secret. So that'll be interesting where that picks up in book three. Indarna also waited 650 years to hatch, meaning she has been around in some way since approximately 17 years before unification. We're going to be talking all about this full timeline of before and after unification in today's archive section. But in other words, as an egg, this means Indarna lived through the Great War. That's pretty impressive. Only she doesn't really remember a whole lot. For instance, she does know that she was left behind to breathe on the Wardstone, but she adds, at least from what I can remember, it has been centuries. So I think it's safe to say we won't be getting a whole lot of before unification insight from Andarna because she doesn't have that insight. On that same note, we can infer that she can hear what's being said in the veil from within an egg. Specifically, she heard the elders talking about Violet, and that's when she knew it was time to hatch. The hows and whys of this, we speculated a little while ago, but I do believe it's a mix of Papa Sorengill having something to do with this and a prophecy of sorts that Andarna knows she and Violet must fulfill together. And now that Andarna's writer is here, she is ready to hatch because she knows that she'll be needed. Separately, Violet doesn't trust her mom to see Andarna because remember, Bisgaia still thinks she's a golden feather tail and that's the type of dragon she is. If her mom saw Andarna grown like this, even as a black dragon and not as part of the seventh den, she would learn the secret of dragon hatchlings. We we talked a lot about that in the previous episode about some of the confusion around why that needs to be such a big secret there so I won't dive into that here today. Speaking of though Lilith is in the Wardstone chamber and gets the confirmation she needs that it can hold power. Huzzah! I do want to know the behind the scenes moment where Lilith does decide to go help her daughter. What was the deciding factor and what was the big old fuck you to Melgrin? Or did she talk to Melgrin and say hey I'm gonna go do this. You're not gonna see me again. Peace out Squirrel Scout. I think it's more of a she she was curious to see if it was possible because she did grant her permission or she did grant Brennan permission to go try to mend the Wardstone. And now she's kind of saying, nope, it's not possible, even though he did achieve what he was supposed to do. So I think that she kind of got out of the in the moment. No, we have to do it this way sort of thing. And she was like, wait a second. I wonder. And then she went down to kind of just see and she saw what was playing out and realized more of an in-the-moment decision, I need to sacrifice myself. I don't think that was the intention when she went down there, but it was always a possibility in her mind where, of course, she would do something like that if it was necessary. Violet sees through Taryn's eyes, sees Zayden fighting and losing to the General Venon. We'll touch a little bit on this as a second signet possibility in next week's episode that's dedicated to that. But Violet does start seeing what's happening between Zayden and the General on the battlefield. And based on the descriptions of Zayden getting back to the edge of the ravine, this is minutes before the battle sequence picks up from Zayden's POV at the start of his chapter when it replays as a dream. Violet even notices that he must have thrown his daggers and missed, and later in Zayden's 
Zayden's POV, the general states that he dodges when Zayden throws at him. So I just, I loved those parallels and you really see it in different chapters and how it all fits together in one big puzzle piece. Well, speaking of parallels, Violet, as she is, I mean, near to burnout on this wardstone, she says, quote, I get it. I finally understand why someone would turn to stealing magic. Ah, the perfect tee up to the big reveal about Zayden at the end. I know that line really jumped out at me, too. <laughs> it's so sad how Violet is sacrificing herself again for those that she loves. She knows when to fight for her life and when her life is worth losing for the greater good. Whether we always agree with her decisions is one thing, but she has awareness of this. And it makes, I mean, I don't know if you're going to like what I'm about to say, but it makes me really hope she doesn't eventually sacrifice herself and not make it out alive. There's a lot of Violet sacrificing herself foreshadowing that I don't want to get too far into because we, I have already said that I don't think it's going to be like a divergent ending, but I just had to say that. Son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I mean, it is, it is a possibility. There is a reason at the beginning of this, both books, it is Jacinia basically saying we commend those who have fallen. And we have seen Rebecca feel very comfortable with killing characters on page. And I don't think it's out of the question that our core two, Zayden and Violet, aren't going to make it out of the series alive. Now, do I want that to happen? Absolutely not, obviously. But I unfortunately could see it happening based on stuff like this, based on the you're going to be the death of me count, so on and so forth. The line where her muscles lock up, her arms lock up, and she's relieved because she doesn't have to hold them in place anymore. I mean, talk about this whole like self-sacrificing energy. Violet's like, oh, thank God, I'm burning out. I don't have to hold my arms up anymore. Woo! It's also calling back to the moment where she, Varish, and Professor Carr were on top of the mountain and she locks up and can't stop the lightning stream and almost burns out there. That's another time in her life where she comes extremely close to burning out. I'd say that these are the top two moments, yes. right? Would you agree yes, with that? Yes, those yeah. are definitely the top two. She got a little bit close in Resin, but not as bad as these other two times. Yeah. I think she didn't understand her power as much True. with the rest in battle. So she didn't understand how to, you know, obviously how to do the control and all that. I mean, even on top of the mountain, you could give the same argument. But I think here she understood the power of like how to control the release of it. And then she just flew open the archives doors because she's like, I don't have time to control anymore. So I think the understanding of her power is definitely more prominent well, here. It- And she also is not trying not to burn out. Like, because in the other instances, she's like, yes, of course, she doesn't want to burn out, but she will for the sake of the mission. But it is still kind of like that balance of, I don't really want to burn out, but if I have to, I will. While this is like, nope, the goal is to burn out. And as Violet is burning out, she's reaching for all of Taryn's power to channel into the Wardstone and imbue it. I want to quickly point out that there is no mention of Andarna's power. I have to wonder, is she taking Andarna's power too and just doesn't know it? Ah, that's such a good point. I never noticed that. Right? Like, assuming that she's not, if she did pull from Andarna's power, would that have changed the outcome here at all? Would it have made her burn out faster because she's got so much extra power coursing through her? Or would that extra power prevent her from burning out? Almost like how it goes with the process of turning venom. Reaching for that extra power gives you more power versus burning out, like what we see here with Zayden. And on that same note, like that would be some really cool foreshadowing in the power where she almost has like extra insurance not to burn out. You know, like she has that extra power so that she won't burn out as quickly or as easily as she has previously. And I say easily as a very relative term because it is not an easy thing to do. She just is put in very difficult situations where it does happen. 
No matter what, I don't think channeling Andarna's power would have been enough to imbue the stone as much as it needed, but it is something to think about as we gear up for book three and her second signet reveal. So burning out is not only for the fantasy world, and I know that when I get burned out or I have just a really stressful chapter of my life, the first thing to go is my flippin' skin. In fact, one time I was about to do a huge presentation for work, and I was getting so nervous over it, and my forehead broke out like freaking crazy, and the entire time I was presenting, all I could do was just stare at my forehead. It really took me out of the moment. And while I was not risking my life to imbue a wardstone, moral of the story is that we all get in the weeds of life and it's important to remember to take care of ourselves and one of the best forms of self-care is taking care of your skin so you can feel good inside and out and that is why we're stoked to partner with apostrophe apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin whether you're dealing with breakouts signs of aging or acne scarring apostrophe will help you love the skin that you're in apostrophe is an online platform that connects you with an expert dermatology team to get customized acne treatment for your unique skin through apostrophe you can get access to oral and topical medications that use clinically proven ingredients to help clear acne simply fill out an online consultation about your skin goals and your medical history snap a few selfies and then a dermatology provider will create a customized treatment plan just for you we have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash FF when you use our code FF. That is a savings of $15. This code is only available to our Fantasy Fangirls listeners. To get started, go to apostrophe.com slash FF and click get started. Then use our code FF at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you so much, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. Oh, boy. It is time to talk about Mama Sorengale's send-off. I will say, at first when Sloane said, I won't do it, and they're practically dragging her into the Wardstone Chamber, I was convinced, capital C convinced, that they were going to sacrifice Sloane because I assumed as a siphon, she would have more of that necessary raw power to be able to fully imbue the Wardstone. And I was like, no, not Sloane. Like, I actually like her now. Well- I mean, same. And I think we were all supposed to, because think about the last siphon we know, or at least know of in the story, who burned out and sacrificed himself, or at least sacrificed everything. And let me tell you, I was fucking pissed when I thought it was going to be slow. I thought that Lilith Sorengale was doing all of her, like, I killed your mother, like, to, like, bait her on and get her angry before she died. I was like, this is terrible. And then Lilith dies. I wasn't entirely mad. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, well, yeah, I'm step a step aside for this conversation. No. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I do. I like it. It is a very gut wrenching moment, and I'll talk about that more at length. But like, in relation to a Sloan or yes. Liam death, it did not have the same emotional impact, and we'll talk about that more later. Yes. So you know, Loth kicks, literally kicks her daughter to stop her from imbuing the Wardstone, and she helps cut her off from that power. Then Brennan starts mending the body Violet has been so reckless with. That's another quote that I really love there. And it wasn't until. Lilith starts egging Sloane on about how she killed her mom and made her watch that I started understanding what was really happening here. We learn right along with Violet from her POV what her mom is about to do, but it's still confusing as we're all still very disoriented. And that's the point of it. I love this whole sequence in the Wardstone Chamber and in the aftermath because Violet is extremely disoriented. She's extremely distressed and it really shows in the writing style and it's very purposeful. And we are supposed to think it is Lilith sacrificing Sloane, not only from the disorienting style of writing in this moment, but also by what we know 
about Lilith up until this point. She is not a warm and fuzzy mother and she will happily sacrifice others for the good of the mission or just happily sacrifice others. I mean, see every single one of the parents of the rebellion children. We're supposed to think that she is dragging Sloane to her death. I mean, the way that she talks to Sloane here, quote, I killed your mother. I tracked her down and hauled her to her own execution. I made you watch, reminding Sloane of these heartbreaking moments in her life. When she started saying all of that, that's when I started realizing oh they're not gonna sacrifice Sloan it like oh I still thought they were I oh, was still thinking they were gonna sacrifice no that's her. when I started to put the pieces together where it's, I think it's like at the very beginning because they are they're being very vague with the pronouns and her and all that and like you're not supposed to know what's going on because Violet doesn't know what's going on but as soon as Lola starts be you know egging her on I'm like oh geez Oh, geez, well, I think I know. <laughs> so for me, it was like when Arik and Indarno are both saying some version of, if I have to choose between her life and yours, I choose yours. And they're saying this to Violet, and they're very specifically not using, you know, names. They're in just, they're like, to your point, Lex, they're just saying pronouns. Yeah. Her life and yours. I was definitely think they were talking about Sloan. Yeah, like, I think that's what we're all supposed to think. Like, it's yeah. supposed to be disorienting in that way. Oh, and then the fact that Lilith uses a softer tone with Sloane than she's ever used with Violet, it's just another heartbreaking moment. I mean, this whole sequence is heartbreaking. Lilith is assuring Violet that it's okay, that everything was to get her to this moment, which again, another prophecy possibility there, possibly, that she would do anything to keep her children safe. She gives the ultimate sacrifice, not just herself, but her dragon, Imser, too, which just let's take a moment to imagine the conversation and the understanding between Imser and General Sorengale. He, her dragon, obviously agreed to this and is part of the sacrifice. He knows better than anyone what Lilith's true motives are to keep her children safe, and he sacrifices himself to protect the Empyrean and to help save everyone. When you've been a writer and and their bonded dragon for this many decades, they must have such a strong partnership. And I bet this mind-to-mind conclusion to sacrifice themselves was just really beautiful and gut-wrenching. And I just, I had to take a few moments to think about that. How dare you add that new level of meaning to this? God, my heart fucking hurts. Now, right before Lilith finishes her sacrifice, Violet, in one last hope, reaches for Zayden, thinking that he'll be able to talk some sense into Sloane. But when Violet lowers her shields, she feels pain, hopelessness, and helplessness. And God, was this terrifying to read. And I may have had a moment where I was like, oh my God, is Zayden going to die or at least pass out and get taken as a result. But no, the helplessness is that moment right before the venom twists the knife at the very end to make him reach for the source. Let's address the emotional impact of Lilith's death because there are a lot of opinions about it and you really have to understand Lilith's perspective to feel empathetic about this death. When I first read this book, and Nicole, I'm pretty sure you feel the same way, I did not feel much heartbreak for her death. Like part of it was reading the book so fast and it was all a whirlwind by the end anyway. Part of it was the inevitable comparison with Liam's death in Fourth Wing, which was its own category of heartbreak. And part of it is that Lilith's character, by definition, is not outwardly an empathetic or likable character so we don't feel the weight of her death because we as readers didn't feel connected to her. I agree completely and I will say it wasn't until the moment when she says I'll get to see him soon meaning Papa Sorengale that was when I was like 
oh, like, oh my God, I was done for. Because when she finally has that moment of vulnerability and taking down those hard walls that Lilith Sorengale is freaking known for, that is when it started to have the emotional impact for me as a reader, at least. And on my subsequent reads, and especially during my deep dive reading a few days ago, my heartstrings really pulled. And I actually caught myself tearing up. I really read it as a mom myself who was, who, and I was, as I was reading this, I was in the moment nursing my baby that I would also do anything for. And I'm going to try not to tear up here either. Even though I disagree with most of Lilith's beliefs and her mothering tactics, I still find myself relating to her in a way I didn't expect I would. Because her goodbye and her reassurance that it is okay to Violet and Brennan is what I would want my children to know too before I leave them. Try not to cry here. (laughs) I'm trying not to cry. God damn it. (laughs) She tells them what they've needed to hear all their lives. That Violet is everything her father and her dreamed she would be. That she would do anything to keep her children safe. That she's happy she gets to be united with their father again and to live well and it's just like you finally get that you I mean yes like it's not like a crazy big character development it's all right there at the end so again it's not trying to like manipulate your feelings it's just a peek into her character because that's how she is twist the fucking knife why don't you Jesus Christ this reminds us all as readers not only from Lilith to her children but also from Brennan who actively tries to reach for her mother after being ice cold to her for their last interactions this reminds us not to hold back in telling those that we love how much they mean to us you know life gets busy sometimes even when we're not at fucking war colleges and especially as someone who does tend to live a lot more in her to-do list than she does in the present moment, I do tend to forget to stop and love on those around me on a regular basis. And it's moments like this in books that are the great reminder to us all to not hold back, to share that you are proud of those around you and to tell them how much they mean to you and how that can really go a long way and not to just save it all for the end. So I love that life lesson that Lilith can teach us all or at least remind us all of. Yeah, definitely. We always saw Lilith from Violet's perspective, obviously being in Violet's head as the reader. According to Violet, her mother has always just tolerated her. She has always appeared unemotional, detached, and she cares more about her career and keeping of our secret than her children. And yeah, that is General Sorengale. But we also learned from this book that under the hard general is a mom and a widow who loved her husband dearly and always sought to protect her children at all costs. She loved them even though she had a really funny and not so good way of showing it. None of this dismisses that she was outwardly a bad mom, but it does help us understand her character more and understand the emotions that the characters that we do care about, like Violet, what they're going through when Violet loses her mom. You know, as Shrek would say, Lilith is like an onion. She's got many layers, but, you know, Pause. She- <laughs> Tell me you've been watching a lot of Shrek with your children without telling me you've been watching a lot of Shrek with your children. So we, yes, because my husband was like, do you think our son would like Shrek? And I was like, oh my gosh, wouldn't that be amazing? So we put it on and he absolutely loves it. And now he needs to listen to I'm a Believer by Smash Mouth on repeat because there's a part that it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. And my son is like, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's the cutest thing ever. Anyway. Last thing I was going to say on that Shrek note is that she, Lilith, is not like a parfait. As Donkey says, everybody likes parfait, but not everybody likes Lilith. So therefore, she is more of an onion. 
I love you so much. And <laughs> God damn it, I love my godson so much. I need to make another meme of the onion versus the parfait. <laughs> anyway, Perfect. when Lilith sacrifices herself and dies, as the reader, we may not be so sad that she died like we were with Liam, of course, but we are sad because we empathize with her character as a mom willing to give the ultimate sacrifice to protect her kids. And we can especially feel for her children who are having to watch their mom's life energy get siphoned out in real time. Like they're having to watch all of this happen. All of this to say, it's okay if you weren't upset over Lilith's death. She was an Onion character, like I was just saying. But our hearts do hurt for Violet, who is losing her mom, who is hearing her mom be open and honest about her feelings for really one of the first times she's ever heard. And only in Lilith's death does she truly let down her guard and say a heartfelt goodbye to her children. And when I keep saying children, I mean mostly Violet. She was mostly speaking to Violet. Brennan is also present. And as much as he hated their mother over the past six years and has been downright nasty to her since revealing that he's alive, he's suddenly a boy who just wants his mom to be alive. And he's begging her not to do this. He's using all of his remaining energy to stumble towards her because remember, he almost burned out from trying to mend the wardstone. It's just, it's so touching. And I can imagine all the regret and guilt that he must feel in this moment. I will say one of the saddest things is Mira, who is most like their mom and arguably got along best with her since Brennan's quote unquote death because she wasn't able to be present. And to be honest, I don't know if she would have let this happen if she was there. I don't know what she would have been able to do, but I don't think she would have let this happen in the same way that everyone else present did let it happen. And I say Violet letting it happen. She was being held back. But you know what I mean? She arrives barely a minute too late, and her reaction to the scene is so gut-wrenching as Mira bellows, what did you do while trying to check their mom for signs of life? It's just, oh, I just, I feel for Mira so much in this because she didn't get to be present, and she's having to deal with the aftermath. I have a feeling that this is going to play a huge role for Mira's character development in next book and going forward, but I will speculate more on that. Interesting. All right. So now we can all dry our eyes if you were crying there a little bit. And all of a sudden you're like, geez, Lexi, you made me empathetic towards Lilith. Let's now talk about Indarna and how she helps remind Violet that even though her mom just died, they all need to keep on moving and finish the ward raising mission. As Indarna says, Zayda needs her and Taryn and Sigal wait with him. I assume he's still fighting the general and Indarna says that he needs Violet because he needs the wards to be up so that the Venom can lose their power and he has even a chance of winning. See, I took this as Andarna referring to Zayden needing Violet as like, whether that's a presence or just like Zayden, Zayden needs you, just like in some form or fashion, like a partner oh. would need another partner. And I do wonder that if she did come to his aid, you know, like obviously with the wardstones and all that kind of stuff, like like taking that out of the picture, if she did come to his aid, would he have turned Venon? Like if she were, if she raised the wards even just a second sooner, would he have turned Venon? And the answer is... Probably not. Well, because by the time that she would have come up to the battle, no matter what, the wards would already be raised. And if that was the case, she would not be in danger of the general killing her like he is threatening to do. However, if for any reason she did not raise the wards and she came up to then help him, I definitely think he would have still turned Venon because the general would have known to turn his attention to her and literally just try to kill her to essentially make him level up. I do wonder because Brennan and Violet as Mira come in like you know they're like pouring over their mom and they don't get out of the wardstone chamber as fast as possible. If they had like if they had gotten out of the wardstone chamber even 30 seconds prior would Zayden have turned Venon? Like that's the dramatic irony that this is just like Shakespearean level in my opinion. 
Yes. And we don't know how much time, whether it's a few seconds or a few minutes, what happened from after he reached and and when the wards came up. My guess is when Andarna says, Zayden needs you, that is seconds before he channels. Yes, I think so yeah. too. What I'm trying to say is I don't know if he quote unquote kills the general with his big strong venom powers or if it's more with his signet powers because then the venom is powerless. I think he he channels and then suddenly he has so much more power with his shadows and he literally lassos the general and like throws him in the water. And, and like him. simultaneously as the wards. Okay, yeah, well, I see that. We'll talk about that at length in a second because I've got some speculation about that. <laughs> in this next sequence where a crew, Sloane, Ark, Brennan, Mira, is, who's dragging their mom's body, and Violet, they leave the Wartstone chamber so the seven dragons can breathe fire on it, which huzzah, huzzah, huzzah! Coda and Darna and five other dragons represented the other dens ignite the Wardstone flame and raise the wards, yeah! One of the most goosebump lines of the book is when Violet looks up at the mended wardstone to the iron flame that burns black on top and quote it's all that's left of my her mother it makes me want to cry all over again because again loath sacrificed herself for Basgaith and now she will eternally be part of protecting the kingdom she dedicated her life to it also brings such a whole new level of meaning to the title of this book, Iron Flame. It's almost like the title is dedicated to Lilith Sorengale, a mother. With all of this going on, like I've previously mentioned, Violet is notably disoriented. She's not knowing who is speaking or even if she's the one talking. And there is speculation that this hints to her second signet, which we will touch on in next week's bonus episode. Personally, I'm of the belief that this is a show-don't-tell writing style here, where a POV character just lost her mom and her world has completely shifted. She is not clear-headed because of her devastation at what just happened, and she's still in shock, and that is just showing up on the page here. Now we have the chapter 65 epigraph, because yes, everyone, that was all just one chapter. So this epigraph is really an homage to Lilith and her children. However, something that I didn't notice until just now is that it's called Recovered Unsent correspondence of General Lilith Sorengale. We know that this passage is meant to be sent to Papa Sorengale, but I do wonder when this was supposed to be sent. I'm assuming right before or sometime before he died. I hadn't caught that either until I saw it mentioned in one of our social media comments. Now, thinking even though Lilith was stationed at Bisgaith with her family, I could see her going out frequently for other missions and, you know, general sort of things. So maybe something happened and she was going to write to him, but then she ended up, you know, just coming home early and she didn't need to send it, you know, and the unsent there is just a way to throw us off. But who knows there? I, I did see another assumption that was online that I really liked that she wrote this letter to him after he died as a way to feel connected to a loved one who is no longer with us, but you desperately wish to talk to them. And it made me wonder if maybe Lilith did write their dad when she was so exhausted trying to keep Navarre's secrets. You know, remember when Violet saw her mom when they were at Athbane and was like, oh my gosh, like she looks like shit. And Lilith had known that her children had left to go to the revolution, and she was sneakily trying to help them fix the wards. So maybe she wrote it, and it was never supposed to be sent because he was no longer with us. And the whole point was more for her own peace of mind versus actually trying to correspond with him. God damn, that's... You're really tugging at my heartstrings today, Lexi. <laughs> then we have the aftermath of the wards raising, causing all the wyvern to drop dead and the venom to retreat. Which, real quick... 
This isn't funny, but it kind of is. How much would it suck to survive the battle only for a wyvern to fall from the sky and just fucking kill you? <laughs> I want you to imagine you're like looking to a member of your squad and you're like, we're saved. We're saved. And just like dead. <laughs> oh my God. What has this book done to us? <laughs> anyway, I just had to throw that out there. All right, moving on to serious stuff. And Darna asks Violet to forgive her for blocking her from saving her mom, to which Violet admits that her mom made a choice and there's nothing to have to forgive with in Darna, which oh, I love their bond so much. Taryn assures Violet that Zayden does live, Dang, is that some foreshadowing? Because yeah, he's alive, but he's got some big issues right now that we will address shortly. I love that right after she gets that confirmation from Taryn, she thinks, that's Gravity, right? He's enough to keep my feet grounded. Prior to this, Zayden and Gravity mentions have always been concrete statements. They have had periods at the end of those sentences. This is a question mark. That's gravity, right? Which is so poetic, given the fact that, yes, he is her gravity, but he's about to throw some question mark level complications into the mix. But the Sorengale children can't join in the celebrations, breaking out all across Biscayeth because they are still processing that their mom just died to power the Wardstone. Dane finds Violet and, like a smart cookie, reaches for her, but then thinks twice and doesn't. This is one more little way of showing that they are rebuilding their friendship, but the trust is still broken. And then in true refashion, she shoves Dane out of the way to praise Violet and embrace her. And our favorite four in the second squad all live. Yay! The fucking sigh of relief that I had reading this for the first time. I was so afraid that someone was going to die. I also love that Reese shoves Dane and then cuffs Violet with two, <laughs> two hands. hands on her face. <laughs> it really also shows the trust that Violet and Ree have that Dane truly does not have yet. He can't even get one hand on her face. And Ree's like, give me your face. <laughs> I want to take it. <laughs> I mean, she also doesn't have the same signet as he does. But yes, she, but I love that she, she does cuff both of her like hands. It. I didn't catch that. I didn't catch that. I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> All right. So now pause, everybody. Because there is a line mid-sentence that we need to discuss. Mira is nowhere to be seen. So right before Violet notices her sister is nowhere to be seen, Mira was standing with Brennan and Violet as Rhi runs up to Violet and celebrates her achievement of raising the wards. Violet breaks down to Rhi, telling her about her mom's sacrifice, and she's just sobbing. Which I do want to point out real quick, because Violet says in her inner monologue in this moment, it doesn't matter that I shouldn't, that it's a shameful display of emotion, or that she, Lilith, wouldn't want it. The emotional baggage that Lilith has left on her children is really at full display here. So I just wanted to pull that out. Violet, better help. See the ad. (laughs) And then when Violet looks up from crying to Rhee, she notices that Brennan is sitting on the steps of the administration building. And that is when Mira is nowhere to be seen. So Mira left while Violet was crying to Rhee. Big question here. Where did Mira go? If I had to guess, she snuck off to her mom's office or living quarters, which I think her office is in the administration building they're close to, but don't quote me on that. And Mira is going to go through their mom's stuff. Not sure if she's looking for anything in particular, but that is what I think is that she's going through their mom's things. She doesn't want Buzgai's leadership to be the first to go through her mom's documents, maybe her weapons, anything else that she has. And again, I'm not sure if Mira is looking for something in particular, but this is just my theory for where Mira went. And maybe whatever she finds will play a role in the next book. Maybe what she finds is more on Venom or their dad's research or Violet and hints about why her hair is silver, because that is also a big mystery that we really just kind of sprinkle out throughout this podcast here. I have no clue. 
But we have some loose ends with the Sorengale parents, even besides their dad's research. So perhaps whatever Mira finds helps solve a few more mysteries. Nicole, where do you think Mira went off to? Because you ha- you teased a really great idea earlier. To be quite honest, I didn't think anything about Mira not being in the last little bit of this book until someone pointed out to us on social media. And quite frankly, normally, I wouldn't really think twice about her not being on the pages, except for there is this line, like you pulled, and Mira is nowhere to be seen, which I don't think would have been written if there wasn't something that Mira was off doing. I love this idea like that she went to Lilith's office to research her stuff. However, there is another option that I have heard. And that is that Mira, in her fury at her brother and her sister for letting this happen to her mom, left to join Melgren and his side. Basically saying, if Horatia's side is the one that gets my mother killed, I actively do not want to be a part of this. And honestly, I could see it. Since our crew is staying here with Melgren after raising the wards, I don't know how this will work, but who the fuck knows? I definitely don't think that the Sorengale siblings are always going to stay happy-go-lucky on the same side. I do think that someone is going to, whether that's betray the others or turn to the dark side, maybe not Venom, but like dark side meaning Melgren's side, I do think that is going to happen. Now, I don't know if this is something that Mira would do because she was very quick to join the Eurasian side and be like, fuck you, mom. Like, I can't believe you've been lying to us this entire time, which doesn't really feel like she would just be like, yeah, sure, I'll go join the people who have been lying and killing people our entire lives. But I do think that Mira, she learned that the Eurasian side is not the quote unquote good guys that I think she thought they were supposed to be today. Well, I love that idea so much. I do think that of the three Sorengale siblings, Brennan has a lot of sus energy around him, but I do think that Mira is the most likely to betray the other two. I think it depends on who they would be training them for. Because I think that Brennan is very much in the revolution. But again, there are some sus things about him. There's the ruin in him. There are a lot of people who speculate that he is a Venom secret agent, essentially. And so I could see him betraying them for the dark side of the Venoms. And then Mira would betray to go back to Navarre. But I, one of the two, I don't think both of them would happen, so... I agree. And I do think that there is a possibility that if Naolan is one of the, you know, sages or one of the head venom or something like that, that Brennan would yeet out of the revolution to go to his potential lover's side. Last thing before we move into the endings, big reveal that you have all patiently waited 13 episodes for. How many hours has that been? How many hours? I haven't done the count, but I tell you what, it was Too over tw- it was over 20 for eight episodes of Fourth Wing, and I know it's a hell of a lot more for this one. <laughs> Melgren and Devera are negotiating the terms for the Arisha cadets to return to Biscayeth. Violet realizes that leadership can't keep the Venom a secret after their attack on Biscayeth. Not only did a gigantic horde fly through Navarre, but when the wards went back up, hundreds and hundreds of Wyvern just dropped it out of the sky. We just did the same moment at, at the exact same time. Navarian citizens are going to notice two-legged, two legs, not four, gray rotted teeth wyvern in their backyards or on their streets or at the grocery store because the roof caved in because a wyvern fell over it or their poor neighbor just had a wyvern fall on them. Again, I'm going back to that. Like you're at Trader Joe's. You're getting your elote your corn chip chips. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, shoot. That reminds me. I need to do a Trader Joe's run. Anyway, this God, is- God, don't remind me. I need to go grocery shopping so bad. 
This is a really interesting setup for book three, because now not only is the secret out to the writers Quadra and Bisgaeth, like it was in book two here, but now it is for the rest of the kingdom, and book three will have to navigate this new development. We're going to save our formal book three predictions for the ramp up for the release later this year, just like we did for Iron Flame. Yes, of course, a lot of you have asked if we're going to do bets. Come on, it's Nicole and I. Of course, we're going to have bets. <laughs> we're competitive with each other. But we're not going to do any of this until later this year in the ramp up, because our opinions can change up until then. I am so curious about how our crew will return to Biscayeth. Technically, they still have half a year as second years because this is only December and then the War Games is in like late June or something like that. And we know each of these books cover six months. So I have so many questions and I'm just going to fire off a few here to get us all thinking. Does this mean that book three will be the second half of their second year in the Writer's Quadrant? That is my assumption. So I'm going to go with yes. However, if that is the case, are we still going to be going to other places like we did expand on the world in this book? I don't see us expanding on this world in book two and then just going back to Bezgaeth and I, keeping it at Bezgaeth in book three. Fantasy books tend to build on each other, right? They tend to grow and grow. I mean, Throne of Glass is a masterful ex- example of this. But it does make me think, which of these, you know, places in Pormiel, the Isle Kingdoms, where would we go and how would we go there if we are just quote unquote, stuck back at Bezgaeth as our second half of a second year. Well, and then that also raises the question about Zayden, because he is the lieutenant. He is supposed to be stationed elsewhere. So now that he's a Venon, would he still be stationed at outposts? Or because he led a revolution, is there going to be some consequences for that? Like, there's a lot of questions around Zayden. I guess I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I do wonder, since he is technically like leader of the revolution, will he be stationed at Bezgaeth with Melgren so that they can almost plan next steps. I do also wonder if Zayden and Violet are going to be called to Caldir as like a, what the fuck did you do in front of the king? And then we also get to go to Caldir, meet King Tauri in a more formal setting, I'll say, than, you know, we did at Reunification Day in Fourth Wing, and also see Halden, who is the oldest of the princes, which is Arik's older brother. Which also, Arik is still technically secret because Lilith Sorengale noticed and recognized him for who he was, which was an epic line of like, I don't care, like just move aside. And but she has now died. And so I'm assuming that secret has died with her and Melgren and all of them they, like his, he still is upholding his secret of being our Great Castle versus Cam Tari. So curious how that'll go for him. Same. A few other questions. How is this battle in secret coming undone going to change their classes? Is leadership rounding up all the venom as we know that they're trying to do? And are they just going to what bring them back to Biscayeth? Do all of the writers start learning about runes? Like how is this going to work with classes and I guess bringing the venom around? And don't even get me well, started on w- all the venom questions I have. But <laughs> well, I do wonder if we're going to have it like more venom centric classics like they did at a yeah. You know, Venon 101, if you will. Can we fucking get Drake's <gasps> book on Venon have that required class reading? Wait, Zayden teaches the Venon class. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> can, you imagine, can you imagine Zayden Ryerson, shadow daddy extraordinaire, being a teacher? Professor Ryerson. Uh, I would be my that's teacher. A, that's a fantasy <laughs> of mine. 
what's going to happen when Markham and Colonel Atos return? They're ominously not mentioned at the end of this battle. I have done my due diligence and I have done my keyword searches and they are not in my ebook towards that end. I would assume Markham was part of the scribe initiative to remove the most precious books from the archives and seal it when Bezgaith was under attack. But again, there was no mention of him during this battle. Could he be in Kaldir like he was in October when Violet and co did their archives heist? Remember, he was not present then either. Then, of course, we got Daddy Atos. He also does not seem to be present at this fight. Last we knew, he was sent to the coastal outposts, like literally like way back in what was it, chapter nine or something like that? Something like that. We don't know, but I'm guessing all writers at these coastal outposts were called to action in Samara because Samara needed everybody on deck. And then, of course, when all the venom and the hordes flew over Samara, Tomorrow, they were like, oh, shit. And then the Navarian army raced to Bezgaith as quickly as they could. Was Daddy Atos among those who went to Samara and then traveled back to Bezgaith at fast pace and is just off page at Bezgaith here? Or did he go off to the Venon? And, you know, we have mentioned how he might be, you know, working in cahoots with them. Like, did he go off to meet with their generals or be with their generals in some way? I don't know. But another Daddy Atos question is, one that we have speculated on the show before, and that is, is he going to be the new leader of Bezgaith, or will it be Pancheck or someone new? Kind of how like we brought Varish into the game earlier this book. If I had to guess, it would be Pancheck. I don't feel like it would be Colonel Atos, just because there are a lot of aides. There are a lot of colonels and leadership and things like that. So I don't think that he is next in line for it. And he made some pretty big mistakes yeah. that Lilith did not forgive him for. So I would guess Pancheck. Where does poor meal fit in all of this? Are the flyers returning to Arisha? Because they can't return to Cliffsbane Academy in Zolia because we can't assume that the Venon are still stationed there. When they moved to Samara, they did not abandon that stronghold. We know that from the Venon map that they had there at Arisha. The flyers probably can't stay at Bezgaith because now that the wards are properly up, they can't wield within them. There's also a lot of lingering prejudice at Bezgaith. I think that opening the doors to Griffin flyers permanently might be a little too much too soon for Navarre right now. I almost do see that we could have the blending of the two, the two schools together. Although that would be quite the hole in their education if they can't wield. But I like, are they able to go back to the Eurasian wards and how long would they have until those wards are dead? Exactly. So like, for instance, do they need to depend on the weakening wards at Arisha to have any kind of protection against the wyvern? To my knowledge, Arisha can't reactivate their wards with six dragons for that partial protection where the flyers can do magic. Like, ideally, they would keep those partial wards up, and then when they start fading too much, then they would just, like, reactivate it because it's a little bit of the best of both worlds. The Venn and the Wyvern are limited in their power, even though it's not completely restricted, but at least the Griffin flyers can have magic. But again, to my knowledge, Arisha can't reactivate their wards with six dragons for that partial protection where the flyers can do magic because the only two black dragons have now breathed fire on the ward stones and it only works once for each of them. Or maybe instead of just doing it one time, it's actually for one ward stone. Taren can reactivate the Arisha wards because he is the designated dragon for breathing fire on that ward stone. We don't know for sure, like that would be very convenient, but we don't know. I really hope that's the case, but that sounds almost too convenient. Another thing is, will the Eurasian leaders head back to Tyrandor, or will they continue helping the education of the Bezgaith writers at Bezgaith? Will they stay in Bezgaith and become part of the faculty there almost? Maybe instead of Professor Ryerson, we instead get, you know, more of Professor Felix. 
And he almost takes over for Carr, and Carr gets booted yeah, out. Carr needs to get fired, especially when Carr needs coming in. <laughs> but like, would yes. yeah, that's a great point. Like, think of Ulysses, for instance. I don't think he ever wants to step into Vizcaya again. I don't think he would necessarily be welcome. So. I'm going to be very curious how how the revolution is split. I wonder if the assembly, of course, will stay back in Arisha and kind of keep doing their thing, keep kind of manning, because this war is not over. This They won a battle. They did not win the war here, assuming that the general is still alive, which we definitely do think he is. We'll get to that in a moment. And then we're only talking here about the revolution's cadets. So all of the writers and cadets who had previously been at Bisgayath, who then left about 100 of them to Arisha, that's who's coming back here. So we'll see. We will see. That's only scratching the surface of the questions that we have. And I'm sure in the next however long as we wait for book three, we will have many, many more. But this last little thing before we move into like one of the biggest shockers that have ever happened in my reading history, at least. I love that Violet tells Taryn and Indarna to catch up. And I cannot wait to see how the Taryn and Indarna dynamic might change next book. If he is less like adolescence and a little bit more respectful towards her if she is the head of her own den. But you know what, Lexi? You know what I regularly think about in this freaking world? What's that? The kind of underwear that our crew wears. Is it comfortable? Do they just go commando in flight leathers? I highly doubt it being sweaty after battle. That sounds really uncomfortable. I have wondered this too. And while we can't speak for a Bisgayath War College's dress code, we do know that with Me Undies, they can offer you insanely comfy yet sexy undies and loungewear to buy or gift this holiday. We here at Fantasy Fangirls believe that love is anything. Whether you're married, single, focusing on friendships or stuck in a never-ending spiral of situationships, or heck, maybe your shadow daddy just turned venom and that complicated things for you, everyone deserves to celebrate love. Me Undies has so many awesome Valentine's Day prints, and all of their products will make you want to curl up into a ball and prrr with joy. Plus, you can match your Me Undies with your boo for an extra special holiday treat. You and them matching Me Undies magic waiting to happen. Wink. From all black classics to fun, expressive prints, Me Undies has a look for everyone. Plus, they come in sizes extra small to 4X large, guaranteeing a flattering cup for everybody type. And Me Undies isn't just about underwear. Explore their lounge collection featuring joggers, hoodies, onesies, and more. When I went onto the Me Undies site, I was blown away by how many prints they have on there. And I knew that I wanted a fun print that felt very me. And I went with a pair that have narwhals on it. And Every time I put them on, I look at my husband and I go, narwhals, narwhals living in the ocean, causing a commotion because they are so awesome. And yes, it brings me more joy than I can ever describe. <laughs> me undies are breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that truly care for their workers. That's why Nicole and I really love partnering here with Me Undies. This Valentine's Day, give the gift that'll always have them thinking of you and get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at meundies.com slash FFG. That's meundies.com slash FFG for 20% off plus free shipping. Me Undies, comfort from the outside in. Okay, friends, it is time. 
Nicole, you going to be okay here as we dive into this? I am salivating <laughs> right now. I am salivating to talk about this. So first up, Sigail is guarding Zayden, and Violet actually asks if Sigail is going to let her pass. Sigail gives us some sass because it's Sigail, but then she does warn Violet to be careful with her words. You know when someone gets like a really bad haircut and their friend or their partner is like, don't say anything about it. Don't say it. That's what I imagine this is like here. Like, Sigail is the best friend who's guarding the really bad haircut. And she's like, you need to be careful with your words. It's interesting, though, too, because she is notably not talking to Zayden herself. So oh, she's pissed. Yeah, she's, she's pissed, pissed. But she's also still protecting him. So yeah. I love that. And we're starting to be like, okay, what's going on here? There's this ominous reassurance that Zayden is alive, but it doesn't feel very reassuring right now. And Violet asks Zayden what happened as he stands over the ravine. Not just like stands, but like literally like his toes are like half, like his feet are halfway over the ravine. And Violet's like, okay, like, dude, like you got to like walk back a little bit here. (laughs) Back, back, back it up. (laughs) Zayden says that he killed the dark-wielding general, saying he snapped the magical tether he had on him and killed him. That magical tether, we'll talk about that here in a few moments when we go through his dream sequence here. Then the general's body fell into the ravine and was washed away by the river. Zayden does keep watching down the ravine as if waiting for this venom to pop back up, even though the general's body is supposedly miles downstream by now. So before we get any further, I have to ask this question. Nicole, do you think Zayden actually killed the general dark wielder? Hell no. No fucking way. This is the general we have been seeing in Violet's dreams. He was the mystery sage, not a sage from Resin. He was outside of the wards. And he was like giving them the stare down at Arasha. There is no way he, this big bad character of our story is killed off page. No fucking way. Now, Satan does say twice that he kills him, but he does not mention how. And the fact that this is a general venom, we don't know what kills them as a high level venom. We'll speculate that more in a second as we cover his dream. They might be immune to what kills other venom or like the lower ranked venom and instead cannot kill the maven level venom. So no, no way. He is definitely still breathing and alive. He's just now wet. Well, so remember from when Violet saw Zayden battling him from Taryn's point of view, he had one dagger left, one of his alloy hilted daggers. And so we can assume he still had that on him right before he reached. So that brings up the other thing here, which the only way that I can see this Venom general being dead is because we have to remind ourselves Zayden had just channeled from the source. So it was a Venom fighting a Venom. And if one of those Venom, Zayden, had an alloy hilter dagger, maybe he could actually kill him. But like you, I don't actually see it possible that the dark wielder died off page at Zayden's hand. Like that would be a huge climactic moment there. And if he did die, then that must just be setting us up for an even bigger bad venom here, which again, he said he was a general, but like this was like, there's no way he's dead. Like I'm trying to play devil's advocate right now. And I just, I am really struggling because I really and truly believe that he is still alive. Like, what if, here's an idea, what if the general was glad that Zayden turned and he let himself get away, knowing that this particular goal, at least, is complete and now his bigger plans can be underway. Of course, their goal was also to get to the veil and to, you know, dismantle the wards and all of that, but it was definitely also to turn Zayden, to turn him over to the dark side. Now that's got a little checkmark 
mark next to it so he can go back on his merry way and figure out plan B for the ward situation. I yes 100% he evil villain yeeted out of there and he was just like check like my things are done you know my checklist is good for the day I'm good to go rest and go Betty bye like (laughs) absolutely that is what happened absolutely okay back to Zayden oh boy there's a lot of notable descriptions about his eyes in the sequence here how he isn't looking at Violet how he's closing his eyes it's clearly preparing us readers and telling us hey focus on his eyes here this is important you know his gaze it's flicking sideways at Violet but then quickly leaves like she's painful to look at we can assume from his body language that he's deeply ashamed about the in the moment choice that he did make I love this description of, quote, silence falls over us and not the comfortable kind. Every person knew exactly what that moment felt like. And it's just a it's a perfectly written line. God damn it. Rebecca Yaros knows how to write. But I love also in this moment that she's telling him that Melgren wants them to come back to Beskayeth. And she says she throws the statement out there to get any kind of reaction from Zayden because he's just like a ghost of a person staring at this river miles below. And Zayden is someone who does regularly look her in the eye, whether it's, you know, as a stoic badass or like the wing leader, like, let me stare you down or like the passionate Zayden. He does regularly look her in the eye. He is not afraid to stare someone down. A vacant, I'm going to stare away from you, Zayden, is not one that we're used to. And it perfectly rams up the anticipation for us as readers. We're supposed to feel unsettled, unnerved reading this in the moment and being like, oh my God, something's about to happen. But then discussing that Bezgayeth is where they should be within the wards. He says, quote, you won't be as scared under the full wards. Now, read Reading this at first, you think, oh, it's because, you know, the venom attacks, they're scary, which they are. But on a reread, you realize that she won't be as scared of him and being around him when she's under the full wards. These types of lines make me think that he won't leave Violet in some kind of like noble, I'm protecting you by staying away type of thing, which I'll discuss more later for that. But after reassuring himself that she loves him, which I think he did that not only for himself, as he knows that the truth is about to come out, but also for her to get it to the top of her mind noggin and be like, hey, remember, you love me. I might have just done something real stupid, but remember, you love me. It's moments like this where Zayden, I do think that he might be a words of affirmation guy. I do think sometimes (laughs) he's like, I just need her to tell me this. I just need her to tell me this and then I'll feel fine. But then... He looks at her and she says in italics, no. And because this is an italics, I do believe she's saying it through their bond. Did you get that same? I I actually, I agree that usually with italics it would be. But in this, I thought it was more for emphasis because she's saying, she. it's described as her screaming it in her own head. So... I don't know. I mean, she he could have heard it down Very the true. intrinsic bonders, especially since now his shadows are more powerful. Maybe his intrinsic bond is too. Yeah. But after this, we get the most gut-wrenching, inc- honestly incredible paragraph I feel like I've personally ever read. And he says, quote, me, he whispers, a faint, almost indistinguishable red ring emanating from his gold-flecked onyx irises. You should be scared of me. Fuck, it's so good. I love the direction that this takes for our story. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm devastated for Zayden. I'm terrified for his well-being in the future books. But I love the conflict and the story aspects that this brings into our tale. Now, I do have a question for you, Lex. When I've been reading these books, I've always pictured the red rim for like Venice being around the eye itself like the skin eye around the eye itself but it wasn't until I saw some fan art where it was almost inside of the eye it was like that red rim around the irises and I 
love it. Which one did you see, at least on like your first read? For like him and for like the description we get like for the initiates that we know of. That I definitely did think it was like around the irises that it was within their actual eyes. But then for like the asums, like it starts like spreading out and that's where it starts getting more like red around their actual eyes versus just their irises. And I do think that around the irises, it's going to be far more difficult for people to actually notice like, hey, is he a venom? I don't think that's going to happen as much. Yeah. I mean, perfect example. Yes. And others, because as he says, they're among them, which we will get to in a few moments. God, I'm so afraid. But Lexi, it's time to switch POVs because that's all we get from Violet. We do not get to see her reaction other than just an italics. No. Oh, we'll get to of that her too. Boyfriend <laughs> turning Venom. Jesus Christ. But we do go to Zayden's POV, and good lord, there is so much here. We're gonna talk about the famous epigraph at the very end because we want to stay focused on Zayden for now at least. So I want to start off with first. I love the only time that we're with Zayden as a POV in this book, it opens with him being suspended in like that suspended anti-gravity almost chamber-like thing that the Venom put them in. But basically his gravity is completely taken away. Now it's notable because throughout this entire book, he has been described as Violet's gravity. Secondly, this line about the trust chicken, if you like me did not know what a trust chicken was, let me enlighten you. So I want you to think about like a rotisserie chicken with its legs like bound up one over the other. That is a trust chicken. You're welcome. Uh, on the same note about the bonds being tied around Zayden, when he is telling Violet that he broke the tether that the venom had on him, and then that's how he killed him. Well, he kind of skipped the part that then he reached for the ground and then he killed him. Oh, yeah, that's a big part that he forgot. I do wonder if it's just that kind of invisible tether that had him bound or if instead it was an invisible tether that is like mind to mind tether. I think like that intrinsic mind signet bond. I'm thinking it's more soul like tether than physical. But it is like a physical because he can't move around and it's like, you know how it is like in magic where there's invisible bindings around you and you're lifted up. It's just magic. Sure. It's common magic that we've seen. And I say common, like being a very powerful thing that this Venom can do that others can't. But unless you're an air wielder and then you can do it too. I think it's a it's a deeper connection, a deeper tether that these two have together. But we can save that for a Bets episode. Oh, I I agree that they're definitely connected more so. But I don't think that the magic that he's using on him has anything to do with that. I think it is more related to their history together or Mm. some kind of greater connection Again, whether his mom's involved or or there's something else at play here, but I don't think that the magic itself has to do with it. I think we're saying the same thing, but in different (laughs) words. I think that would not be the first time that happened. (laughs) Won't be the last. Now, Zayden is also saying that this Venom is acting just like he does in his fucking nightmares. You know what would have been nice to know about 50 chapters ago, Zayden, that you're having fucking nightmares. Now, I do not blame Zayden entirely. Like I mentioned earlier, Violet could have said this to him, too, that she is having scary nightmares. But still, communication, y'all, not your strong suit. Now, Zayden does say this one sentence that raises my eyebrows. He says, quote, what is it about me that fails the females in my life? Now, we know that he feels some kind of way that he has failed Violet and he feels like he's failing her right now. And we also know that he's feeling like he's failing Sigail as he's, you know, about to reach for fucking venomhood. I'm curious, Lexi, do you think this could also be about his mom? Yes. And if so. Yes. How? Well, 
I don't know if it's necessarily something that specifically happened, but he does have some real attachment issues with his yeah. mom left when he was 10 because she apparently did not have much of an attachment to him. And he still carries around a blanket that she made for him because it has sentimental value to him. And so something, I don't know if something specific happened with his mom, but he feels as a child, he failed her in some way to make her not want to stick around. Yeah. And therefore she left. I think you're right on the money. I think it's like he feels like he failed in being good enough for her to stick around yes. past the age of 10. Like, which is so sad. That's so sad. Then also in this Venom dream sequence, the Venom is described as having, quote, eerily red rimmed eyes and spider webbed veins. Now, according to Drake's Cordella's Venom, a compendium, a.k.a. the epigraph for chapter 47, the sages have perma red eyes and veins that like go up to their temples. There's no physical description for the general slash mavens, though. This description of the general does feel rather close to the sages, which is interesting. So I guess that the looks aren't all that different. And I do think that Zayden and Drake need to meet up and add a little, you know, asterisk or a little addition to the compendium here. And last thing here is that Zayden mentions how generals can be killed just like soldiers. And the Venon says, do they? Which has me nervous. This has me nervous. What kills the Maven? Zayden does think he kills the Maven. And like you said earlier, Lex, he had one of his alloy-hilted daggers. So I wonder if he stabbed said Venon with an alloy-hilted dagger. But guess what? Alloy does not kill the generals of the Venon crew. I do think that anything sage or lower, Alloy is probably good. Now, maybe he also killed him in an, or he thinks he killed him in another way, whether it was like the long fall or something like that. I definitely think that Mavens have some extra special level of killable hierarchy that obviously our crew knows nothing about. I could definitely see that happening. So before we get too much further into especially the Jack Barlow part here, I want to address that there is a lot of confusion among the fandom about why Zayden felt he needed to turn Venon to protect Violet. Again, it's a very hectic sequence there at the end of the book. And so I want to break it down here so that everyone can be super clear on why he turned. While Violet went down to imbue the Wardstone and raise the wards to be able to stop the whole battle, Zayden stayed up to face the Venon and buy her time. He knew that the Venon were targeting him, that they were waiting for him. And of course, he wasn't going to hide from it. Zayden is a guy who faces the Venon head on. But he is no match for this powerful general. Zayden is close to burning out from how much he's been wielding, and he knows that he's going to be defeated. All the while, Taryn and Segale are in the air above, fighting the wyvern attacking them. These wyvern are specifically targeting Taryn and Segale to prevent them from coming to Zayden's aid, fighting the venom. So they are essentially blocked from helping him because these wyvern are ruthless, trying to tear them apart. The general gives Zayden one last chance to make the right choice, aka turn venom, by releasing the magical mid-air suspension he had on him, that tether, as Zayden described it to Violet. And Zayden falls to the ground. Ho ho! The venom just gave Zayden the chance to be at the ground to channel. I also love that in this moment, like he he has his hands on the ground and he almost has the idea. It's not like blatantly in the text yet, but then Sigail roars in pure fury and it's almost like she knows exactly what decision he's about to make. And she's like, don't like, don't. you yeah. know when you have a cat and they're like about to like knock over a water glass and you're like, don't do it, Miko. Miko, don't do it. And the cat just goes, 
wapow, and just like knocks it over. Yes, I have children. <laughs> you, you also live with a cat. So. I know that's why my nose is always so itchy. <laughs> so that's interesting because I'm actually going to get to it here in a few minutes. I disagree that Zayden knew or had any inkling that he was going to turn until the moment that he did. So oh, interesting. Let's, let's talk about that there in a moment. So Zayden is on the ground now, and the venom is giving him the chance to turn. And the general starts taunting Zayden about Violet, because he knows that she is the most important thing in Zayden's life, and protecting her is the only way he would turn venom. But Zayden keeps refusing. Then he feels for Violet in their bond, and in that moment, she is about to burn out herself, trying to imbue the wardstone. He realizes she's about to sacrifice herself to give the Wardstone a chance to be activated so the wards can be raised and everyone, specifically Zayden, can be saved from this dark wielder. But I don't think that had really anything to do with him turning, at least in this exact context here. The general just keeps taunting him about Violet, saying that once he kills Zayden, which seems inevitable at this point, he will go find Violet and wrap his hands around her neck and drain her. That right there is why Zayden knows he needs to survive this, because if he doesn't, this venom will target Violet and kill her. So Zayden is reaching in the depths of Sigale's power, but there's just nothing left. He can't let Violet suffer the consequences of this failure. And that is when he feels the power under the ground. And with no other alternative to save both of them, he reaches. I love the description of Zayden feeling the power beneath his hands. Like he says, quote, the slush beneath my palms melts and I feel there's something beneath me, a steady flow of unmistakable power. By the way, power is in italics in case we're doing an italics check. I love this moment. This moment also when Sigail begs him not to reach. She says, I chose you. And Zayden says back, but Violet chose me too. And in the final moments, he says he reaches. And it's just like, oh God. And then he wakes up. It's like, Rebecca, Rebecca. (laughs) So good. So going back to the conversation we just touched on a little while ago, I will start by saying that a lot of readers do believe that this reach was accidental. But the best way that I can describe it is this. He had no intention to reach for the Earth's magic. He even says as much to the general when Zayden says he would never turn. And I fully believe that he believed this, that he would never turn. But the moment that it mattered most, he was faced with a choice. Choice number one, reach for the source and gain the power he needed to fight and supposedly kill the general. Choice number two is die, knowing that the general was going to kill Violet afterward. And Zayden is looking at these two choices and realizes he does not actually have a choice. He has to do what he never wanted to do, never intended to do, and that is to reach to save Violet. I do agree with you that he never intended to do it until the moment where it happened. I do think that the reason Sigail roars earlier is because she sees it almost as a possibility. Yes. So I I think I wasn't very clear with that. But yes, I... We're saying the same thing without saying the same thing again. We're saying the same thing. (laughs) How many minutes did that take us? (laughs) I do think definitely that this was not an accident, however. I... Zayden's not someone who really does shit by accident. He is a very intentional dude and he made a choice here and he's going to pay for some of these choices next book. But I definitely think that he saw, like you're saying, Lex, he saw that his girl was going to die and he said, well, I can either save her by doing this or I can die and let her die as a result. So of course he chose this option. Yep. Yep. And there's also a lot of foreshadowing all throughout the book that he would do this, that he is capable of, if Violet's life is in danger, it does not matter what the cost is, he will protect her. And 
Yeah. This is what ultimately happened. It was a lot of foreshadowing up to this moment. Now, quick note here, just before we finish up with any of the dream sequence, and again, before we get over the Jack part here, there is a lot of questions floating around about whether Violet has been seeing Zayden's dreams all along. Because once we get to his dream in his POV, it's eerily similar to Violet's. A lot of people do believe this. I'm personally leaning towards these are separate dreams, and it's part of how the Venom communicate with them. Zayden's dream was more of a flashback told in like a dreamlike state in order to show off the memory. And I have to wonder if it was done this way for just the flow of giving us vital information in the story's sequence. We also know for a fact that the Venom want both Zayden and Violet. So it's not surprising that the same Venom is in both of their dreams and essentially saying the same thing to both of them, making them very similar dreams here. Also in Violet's dreams, she does reference Taryn and Andarna at one point. So I, I do think that they are very different dreams, but it is really showing that the Venon are after them for, I don't know if the same reasons, because Zayden's got something going on here. I think he is holding a few secrets here with his why, but the Venon do want both of them. I think that this is more of a copy-paste situation <laughs> versus a I'm Violet and I'm seeing into your dream. Yes. You know, the Venom are just kind of like duplicating. Now, the Venom does say to Zayden, I told you once that you'd turn for love and so you shall. If this sounds familiar, it should because in chapter 52, Violet's dream, the sage, not a sage, says basically the same thing to her. And note that he says this right after we get the comment about him coming close and she's smelling something sweet on his breath. Sweet is a word that we regularly connect to Zayden in both books. Obviously, the general is not Zayden. I want to be very clear, but it is an odd parallel. And maybe it's a parallel to think that, oh, we're connecting these dreams to Zayden or even connecting the Venom to Zayden. But I definitely want to keep an eye out for more of those dream connections. And I do wonder if the dreams are going to continue next book. Yes, I do think that they will continue in a in an interesting capacity. And now that Zayden is a Venon, is it going to be, I'll say, easier for like with the dream sequences? I don't know. I could see there being almost like an evolution of all of that. But let's talk about another thing that during our initial reactions episode, I actually re-listened to it to kind of have like bookends here from when we first started this journey to now. And it's, we've grown so much. We were so scared for this deep dive and we've done it. We did it. We did. We're, we've, we're not done yeah, yet. Yeah, we're no, doing no. it. I should. <laughs> But one of the things I was really hung up on was what is Violet's reaction to Zayden turning Venon? We can absolutely infer that she knows he turned Venon at the end of chapter 65, the last chapter in her POV. He finally looks at her and she recognizes the red ring emanating from his irises. Like we said, in her head, she's screaming, no. And he says that she should be scared of him, which makes his emphasis on staying within the wards make sense. In other words, Zayden is telling Violet in no clear words that he has turned Venon and they need to stay within Besgaius wards so his Venon power is restricted and therefore Violet doesn't have to be so afraid of him. All of this happened around midday after the battle lasted approximately four to five hours. Then we get a time jump to later that night and learn that in the half day or so where we didn't see on page, our crew was waiting in the overflowing clinic where they waited for Sawyer to come out of surgery. I would have given anything for those chapters of what was going on in Violet's head, I guarantee you they were standing next to each other just totally silent. I don't think they were having it out yet. I think it was very much like, 
I'm pissed at you, but I don't know even where to begin. Okay, but that brings me to my next point here, because we know that Zayden was around other people, including Violet. Oh, actually, I guess I'm not getting to my point quite yet. But I am going to speculate that only Violet knows Zayden is now a Venom. Yeah. The red rim around his irises, it was almost indistinguishable. So perhaps, probably, it faded and no one is the wiser. We don't know this, but that is definitely my guess. My big question leaving this book is, are people going to know next book that Zayden turns Venon? I'm personally leaning towards no. I mean, look at the intrinsic secret he's kept for three plus years. Unless, however, they get close to him after he's channeled from the source. Now, he mentions later on in this chapter, in this POV chapter, that it's a craving. Like, I almost think about it, and I can't remember if Rebecca's made a formal connection to this, but it does sound to me like an, almost an addict needing a fix, right? And he mentions that he's craving it. And even Jack Barlow says, you're just going to want more and more. Now, he mentions also that him and Violet waited outside of Sawyer's surgery for hours. And I don't think that Zayden would just be sleeping in a room all peaceful if someone went, oh, Zayden's a venom. Oh, like no, that would not be happening. No one. I definitely think no one noticed. I do think he's going to do a very good job of hiding it. So my question is, how long into book three until he, I guess my few questions are, how long into book three until he channels from the source again? What do you think? I think it's going to be sooner than we think. Or he'll essentially sacrifice his signet powers and take the serum in order to alleviate it. I think Very both possibly. are going to happen. I, I agree. My second question is, who will be the first person to know after Violet? Garrick? <laughs> that would be my guess. But I also could see Imogen figuring it out and being like, you idiot. <laughs> oh, man, I'd love to see that. I would too. Uh, okay, so with all of this to say... This still leaves a big question we have not addressed yet about Violet's reaction to the man she loves turning Venon to help protect everyone. And my even bigger question, the one that I was really hung up on here in our initial reactions episode, is why she's in bed with him when she should be so scared of him. This was actually addressed, sort of, in the Variety article, which I'm going to quote in its entirety here. So the question is, we end the book there in that scene with Jack and Zayden's POV, meaning we don't get to be in Violet's head for her reaction to Zayden becoming Venon. And when we pick up in Zayden's POV, she's asleep next to him and we get no dialogue between them. So presumably, whatever Violet's reaction was to seeing his red-rimmed eyes, she felt safe enough to sleep in her bed with him that night, even though she knows he's turning Venon. That question embodies everything that I'm wondering here as well. So Rebecca's answer is correct. Welcome to conflict. How do you keep a couple together and apart and together and apart for five books? Would you like some conflict? Have some conflict. So I love our girl Rebecca, but I'm going to be honest. This answer does not clarify anything. <laughs> I think it's not supposed to. I think that was one of those moments where she was like, just wait until book three, but I don't want to say book three one more time in this variety article. And I do also love that it's together and apart for five books. Yes. That to me is all the confirmation that we need for us to be like, oh, we're in endgame territory. Yes. Yeah. But, okay, so yes, there will definitely be conflict as they try to figure out a cure. I'm still scratching my head how they're in bed together, though, after she knows that he's a venom. 
so that was like me as a reader. So now I got to put like my analyst hat on and, you know, like think about it more of like a really character and the whole book and all of that kind of thing. There's actually a lot of foreshadowing throughout the book and specifically in the last 10 or so chapters that solidifies Violet's love. It's not fickle. They love each other and are determined to overcome all the odds. And that must include Zayden becoming a venom. So in my first read of this book, again, I was really hung up on, on why Violet was in bed with Zayden. Almost like this big bombshell didn't drop. And I was like like, wait, did I have my timelines confused here? But now that we've done this deep dive and I recognize how much emphasis there is on them sticking through challenges together and how much foreshadowing there is for them to stay together, that their love is stronger and that they can overcome obstacles, I can see how she still trusts him. I can see how she still stays by his side and I can see how she's sleeping next to him because technically Zayden's not suddenly a bad guy because he just turned Venon. Yet. I hated that. I hated that a lot. <laughs> well, and remember back in the sparring scene in chapter 58, Violet mentions that he could throw her world into upheaval or ruin her and she would still love him. Again, Violet, be careful what you fucking wish for. It's going to be put to the test here, definitely in book three. I also want to point out that after four to five hours of war, after her f- burning out, draining herself to the dregs, she was exhausted. Her mother died. So, her, oh yeah, her mother dying. She was so tired. And I do think that this was one of those, look, I can't even begin to start talking to you about this right now. I'm so fucking tired. I need to go to sleep. So I do also think that there's an element of she was like, I mean, even Zayden mentions she has like bruises under her eyes from yes, losing her mother and the traumatic emotional trauma that experience does bring but also from just pure exhaustion of burning out basically so I do think that also comes into play as to why she was so just like look I'll just sleep with you in bed next to you yeah I do think that book three is going to open up with them having a conversation together or it's going to open up immediately with her grappling with this information yes I agree with that too Now, Zayden does look over at Violet and he notices that she has tear tracks on her pillow. And while he says that she lost her mother today and she's suffering as a result, I do want to point out that Zayden, my guy, that is not the only reason she's fucking crying. I guarantee you she's probably so overwhelmed with emotion. That is also a huge thing coming into play. But then he says, and I'm about to be the biggest cause of it. I thought I fucking thought that this was him making the decision to sneak away in the dead of night and leave her because then she's more protected and da 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 da. I've talked about this multiple times and definitely in our reactions episode but there is this pattern in books where typically the male character in a heterosexual relationship says something like I'm not good enough for you and therefore you're better off without me and then they leave. See Twilight for a prime example of this and to be honest I am really, really hoping that is not a pattern that is going to show up in this story. And for many reasons, I don't think it will be unless new things come into play that drive a wedge between these two in book three. But the main reason I don't think that this pattern will come into play is because Zayden is morally gray through and through. He reached for the source because he wanted Violet to live and for them to be together. Like I mentioned in the sparring scene just a second ago, he also brings up that he needs to know that she will be there to fight for them no matter what. 
him just peacing out Squirrel Scout would be a really big 180 if he just decided to like yeet out of the relationship after all of what they've done in the second half of book two. Now, while I do feel like this is a tease for this type of pattern, it is Rebecca Yaros, and one of the things she does best is break our hearts, so I don't think it's out of the question, but I am leaning towards we are safe from this book trope in book three and beyond. What are your thoughts, Lex? It would be quite a 180 from his character, and he's also willing to do anything to keep Violet safe. So I, I do think that if for any reason she has to go beyond the wards, that he would probably not want to be in the same vicinity as her. But I don't know. Like, I I could see him doing that. I don't want him to, but this might be a bet that we have to place where he does for the good of the, for the good of them, for the good of her. I, we might need to do a bet on that. I know, right? I don't want to either. Colin of you. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, I hope not. Now, as Zayden is leaving to go visit good old Jack fucking Barlow, he whispers to Violet that he loves her just because he can. This mirrors Violet saying those exact words from both Fourth Wing when she and Zayden are hooking up in the lake before the Griffin Flyers come in, and in Iron Flame Part 2 when she is about to head to Rune's class, she kisses him just because she can. I love those little mirrors and how they think very similarly as their relationship grows and it's dies I'm sure as this, this happens I don't think dies like it's gonna end because like I do I do think that they're end game, but I don't think it's gonna go over very well for them next book it is also noticeable that Sigil has been eerily silent since he turned Venon and oh goodness how is this relationship gonna change we're obviously focusing on Zayden and Violet because they are our core relationship in this book but Zayden and Sigale are also a primary relationship while mostly off page. We can insinuate most of it from off page. I am really hoping for more Zayden POVs next book for many reasons, but also so I can read Sigale ripping him a new asshole for what he did. Yeah. Oh, man. So some readers are curious if he and Sigale are still bonded. And the answer to this is yes, they are still bonded after Zayden turns Venon. You do stay bonded to your dragon after you turn. Rebecca has confirmed this and we saw it happen with Jack. But yeah, Sigale is pissed at Zayden. There is also the question now that if Sigale dies, does that mean that Zayden does die? No, he would not die if and only if he channels from the source soon after Sigale would die. Remember what happened with Jack. He was starting to die. Like there was even that correlation where it was like, oh my, like he was starting to have like the heavy breathing like like Liam did after his dragon died. He was starting to go. But then he channeled and drew life back into him, therefore proving you don't need to be tethered to your dragon to keep living, but you are still tethered to the greater power, to the magic that you've taken, to the magic that you have essentially lost your soul to now. Think of it like a drug, as Jack fucking Barlow kind of describes it. Also, we've noted this numerous times on the pod, but we have to call it out here. Zayden's shadow power has increased, so we can only assume that both of his signets are about to increase in power. What does this mean for what he can do? We are desperately awaiting to find out yes we are but then we meet up with jack fucking barlow and how poetic is it that he is in the same cell as violet was when she was back in her torture sequence we learn from jack fucking barlow that he has been getting dosed by for what we gather the same serum that our crew and violet were drugged with basically all of part one now jack fucking barlow also mentions that there's no cure for what they are this is the second time in this chapter other than the epigraph which we're going to talk about in just a second where we get a line that literally says there is no cure now this could be foreshadowing that we 
and crew do find a cure for our dear, dear Zayden, this could also be priming us readers to get real comfortable with Ven and Zayden and that there is no turning back. What do you think, Lex? I'm going to be optimistic and say that, yes, it is foreshadowing that there will be a cure. But like most things, it won't be a linear solution. I believe that Violet and Andarna will play a vital role in his, I'll say, soul being mended there. But it's not really mending his soul. I mean, yes, because he did sacrifice it for becoming a venom, but Zadin still has a heart. He still has a soul, I would feel. I bet in book three, he'll be battling his inner venom, which is pulled towards that power and like the dark side and that addiction there. And the soul that he still has, which is his love for Violet and all that he has stood for. I did just think too, like like the longer he's been in, like maybe like the less soul he gets. And so like that could complicate his feelings towards Violet too. So I do think that next book we are going to get a lot more Zayden POV because we are going to be seeing from his inner self how he is grappling with this loss of soul or this losing of the soul. So I do think that next book we are going to get more of a dual POV possibly, hopefully. Well, what does this all mean for Segale too? I think we're going to get Sigale ripping him a new asshole in his first POV. But what if like he not necessarily tries to control her, but like there is something up between a dragon who is bonded to a venom. Lex, I want you to picture this with me real quick. What if the first Zayden POV chapter, assuming that we get one early, early on in the books, he is going up to Sigale and they're having their whole like, let's have it out. And she huffs at him and he mentions how her breath smells (gasps) bad. What if that fucking happens? That's canon in my head now. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I think you're right. You're welcome. (laughs) That'll keep me up at night for a year. (laughs) We've mentioned this several times here, but I want to really zone in on it here for a moment. Becoming a venom represents being an addict. As Jack says, you can never give back what's taken. You'll only hunger for more. And Zayden can feel it. The power beneath Biscayeth almost calling to him. His craving to satisfy his need for more. It's already there. And the only thing that can squash it is the serum, which also stifles your signets and your dragon bond. Zayden even says that he would rather die than become one of the venom. But Jack makes a good point. I hate that I'm saying that, but he does. I lost my train of thought there. Yes. Okay. So Zayden did turn instead of die, but it wasn't his death he was worried about. It was that his death would directly lead to Violet's death, according to the general who wanted to go after her once when he killed Zayden. So again, Zayden would rather die than turn Venon, but he would rather turn Venon than have Violet die. And then we need to talk about the last two lines of this an incredible book. I think we can both agree this book is chef's kiss. And I'm quoting the whole damn thing. Let's quote <laughs> Jack's fucking Barlow says, all of this time, you've been convincing everyone that you're the hero. And now you'll be the villain, especially in her story. Welcome to our fucked up family. Guess we're brothers now. Wow, there's a lot to unpack here. First, how beautifully meta. The quote, you've been convincing everyone you're the hero, not Violet everyone. I love it because yes, us readers, yes, we know that he's morally gray. However, we do believe that, you know, on some level, at least I did, that, you know, Zayden is one of the heroes in our story. And I love this gorgeous line. And then he says, and now you'll be the villain, especially in her story. This is absolutely 
perfectly teeing us up for book three and the conflict that Zayden and Violet will have. I don't think that Violet will be okay in the slightest with her shadow daddy Venom, and I think that she'll try to understand. Yes, I think she'll seek out info for a cure. Yes, but I think there's going to be fear, aka what we feel towards villains in stories in regards to Zayden and what he now is. Yes, exactly. There are so many layers to their conflict and their desire to overcome it as well. Neither Zayden or Violet are people who are willing just to sit tight behind the wards either. They're problem solvers, but I bet the solution, it will have to take them outside of the wards, and I'll be very curious how that all plays out. Maybe to the Isle Kingdoms, you say? <laughs> Maybe to the Isle Kingdoms? I, I don't know if we're getting the Isle so. Kingdoms in book three. I think may, probably book five. Maybe book four, if we're lucky. What? Yeah. I Okay, we need to add this to a next bets list and that is I think we're going to the Isle Kingdoms in book three. All right. I'm so excited to prove you wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Someone's a little bitter about chapter 56 in my opinion. I can't wait to be right twice. Next Jack fucking Barlow says, welcome to our fucked up family. I want to remind you of the last line of Fourth Wing. Welcome to the revolution, Violet. Both books end with our main characters getting welcomed into a family they didn't know of or they did not want to be a part of. And my God, the parallelism is too good. And lastly, He says, guess we're brothers now. Some fans have speculated that Jack fucking Barlow saying this to Zayden is actually calling out the fact that they are actual siblings. You know, we've talked at length in this podcast about the foreshadowing for Zayden definitely having a sibling at some point. Personally, I'm leaning no on Jack fucking Barlow fulfilling this role for Zayden. I think that this is more of Jack fucking Barlow baiting, (laughs) get it, that Zayden it's baiting him and basically saying a big old fuck you to Zayden. What are your thoughts? I well, well, first of all, I do think that it is a promise that we will get a lot more about Jack in the next book and that he serves this greater purpose of coming back and being a Venon in that connection. But no, they are definitely not siblings. First of all, they look too different. Remember that Zayden is a person of color and Jack is a big blonde dude. So there's that to start off. And second, I really consider this more as like a fraternity brother, so to speak, rather than an actual brother. Again, big fucked up family, meaning just being a venom, being indoctrined into that venomhood there. And so it's like that fraternity brother sort of thing. On a somewhat similar note, just as we're talking about venom and their brotherhood and all of that, there seems to be a general consensus among the readership that venom have a hive mind. But I'm personally struggling to see where everyone got that information because I actually disagree. Wyvern have the hive mind because they are created by the venom, but the venom themselves, they don't. As far as I know, I could be wrong, but I'm going off of the assumption that the venom do not have a hive mind. It's the wyvern that we have confirmation that they do. My guess is that we got this assumption from the, we the fandom got this assumption from Jack fucking Barlow saying that he was planting lures to get them to bed. Gaius and almost how it's like this mind to mind connection that all Venons have together of just like hey you know we want to go here so like help lure us here I don't know I truly don't know I do agree with you yes we have confirmation that the wyvern yes are the hive mind for the venon who created them yes that is confirmed on the page yes I will be very curious if now Zayden gets, you know, secret Venom intel from like the Venom megaphone blasts through the Venom network, you know, on LinkedIn. Like, I will be curious how that would work and if that would make Zayden too OP, too all powerful. So 
I personally do not think, especially the lower level, Venon would have such a great connection to, let's say, General Maven Venon. That seems too convenient. I have so many thoughts about the whole way that they communicate and all of that. But I, yeah, I think that the Venon are on some level their own people. They're very corrupted. And yes, they have like their hierarchy and all of that kind of stuff. And they're power hungry. And there's like that almost like that attic feel to it again. But that doesn't mean that they have a hive mind. I will only be able to think of Venon in terms of frat parties now. So thank you very much. (laughs) Well, so I did I did pull one quote here that I think is where people did get this idea from. It's from when they're on the cliffs of Draylor and the first Arishan hatchlings are hatched. And Brennan says Venon share a collective conscience with the wyvern they create. So Again, that is the collective conscience is with the wyvern that they create, not with the venom altogether themselves. So just wanted to clear that up, or at least as far as we know, that's our assumption. But don't think we've forgotten about the final epigraph because, wow, there's a lot to unpack here, too. This one is so important that I'm just going to read the whole thing. It's a missive from Lieutenant Colonel Nolan Colbercy to General Lilith Soringale, and it says, We have tried every method we know of as you requested. There is no cure. There is only control. Whoa! We learn so much and have so many questions from these few lines. So we learn... Biscayeth has been experimenting on venom and trying to find a cure for an unknown amount of time. This missive was written when Colonel Nolan was a lower rank. Lieutenant Colonel is the next one down. Nolan is also elderly and is like 85 years old. Actually, he was 84 in Fourth Wing, so it's a year later, so he is actually 85. Because he's older, it's very possible he was promoted to Colonel some years ago and not recently. He hasn't really seen action in a long time is what I'm trying to say. Now, some people have clarified that lieutenant colonels are sometimes called colonel as an abbreviation, and Rebecca Yaros, being a military wife, knows that. I absolutely hear that, though have to say that would be very confusing in the context of the story, so I'm going to lean that is not the case in this situation here. The one time he is referred to as a colonel, it is Markham making the announcement about how Colonel Nolan has pulled off a big achievement and mended Jack. That seems very official. And coming from Markham too, I don't feel like he would use the shorthanded version of his rank. Now, what I could definitely see happening here is that once when Nolan's done with Jack, that is what got him promoted to Colonel. And that's the argument for the missive being much more recent. But it could be as a result of them thinking that they fixed Jack. Well, because Jack is doing so well. He's so (laughs) nice now. So Nolan must be a genius. Like, I could definitely see this happening. I still love the idea, though, that this epigraph, this missive, is from years and years ago. Because these epigraphs, they offer Easter eggs. And this would be a very clever one to hint to the timeline of how long Bisguyeth has been trying to fix this. But we'll get to further evidence that this is actually a recent missive in a moment. We also learn from this epigraph that Lilith has been acting working with others, specifically Nolan the Mender, to find a cure for Venom, which has brought about a lot of theories. So let's just highlight a few of them. Number one, Lilith herself is a Venom, and she's having Nolan try to find the cure for herself. Back in Fourth Wing, Violet had a story where she said that she thought her mom was a Venom because she had red around her eyes, but it turned out that her mom was just tired. There are a few other instances sprinkled throughout the books that people are gravitating towards that Lilith herself is a Venom. On this same note, there is a very popular theory that Violet is part Venom. Something along the lines of, and the theories do vary in details, but along the lines of Lilith fighting a Venom while she was pregnant 
pregnant with Violet. And the reason she fell so ill is because she got stabbed with a poisonous dagger or the venom wielded magic into her or even going back to the first possibility that Lilith reached became a venom and that affected Violet then in the womb. Here's one thing I will say in regards to Lilith being a venom. If she was a venom, I don't think her death would have worked out the way that it did. She purposefully uses Sloan to siphon. If she was already a venom, she would have just channeled from the ground to imbue the stone, I think. That at least makes more sense in my brain. I love this idea that a venom like grabbed Lilith or something when she was pregnant and drained her and as a result drained Violet as well. Now that might mean Violet's some kind of weird hybrid venom that might mean she has venom like powers and we just you know without being an actual venom who lost her soul I don't know but that would explain you know her hair being half drained as it is and we should note that Rebecca has confirmed there is a reason that Violet's hair is partially silver and we will learn it at a later date so all of that to say Lilith is having Nolan search for a cure of venom for her daughter Violet, who she knows is part Venon in some way. That would also connect why Nolan and Violet, well, yes, because she was always getting hurt. She was always needing mending. But that also would explain why Lilith trusted Nolan to do the research and all this kind of stuff because he was already so connected to Violet. That's a possibility too, yep. And another possibility too, just as we're talking about the timeline, what, say 20 or so years ago, he certainly could be a lieutenant colonel. So that that. True. checks out. Others have theorized that she is looking for a cure for Papa Sorengale, who had turned venom. To be clear, however, Rebecca has confirmed that Papa Sorengale is dead. Like He is dead. I also feel like she confirmed that he is not a venom, but I can't find the interview to double check my sources, so I can't state that as a fact, but I swear I heard her say that he is also not a venom. So I know exactly which interview you're talking about. It's the video interview with Entertainment Weekly's book club. It's on YouTube. And in this interview, she confirms that he was not a venom at Russin because a lot of people were thinking that he was one of the at Russin. And she was like, don't you think she'd recognize her dad? So when she says he's not a venom, it, it was in that context. Now, to be clear, I personally do not think that Papa Sorengale, who was doing all of this research on feather tails, and we personally do believe that he got killed for the research that he did by leadership. I do not think he is Venom, but we have not had that officially confirmed by the author. I will take those semantics for what they are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I personally think it's close enough for us to confirm, but I don't want to say misleading information. This epigraph could be proof that Biscay's leadership has known about Venon being among them, as Jack says, and they've been actively trying to fix this pretty big issue. And so they're trying to cure those who reach because we've talked a lot about how we could definitely see that being a fairly common thing among writers is that they are power hungry and that they do reach, whether by accident or by the venom among them kind of like telling them, you know, like what's actually possible. But anyway, that they're trying to cure those who reach and become venom within the wards. But ultimately, of course, there is no cure. There is only control. And the way to control them, this serum that both blocks signet powers and strips venom of their power. And I'm going to guess as well, they're craving for that power that's kind of like insinuated by Jack in the final chapter. But wait, this serum is new this year. Aha, this is where I start wondering. Was it around? Yes, Nicole. I have an idea, I have an idea. <laughs> yes, yes, so, yes. Nolan's wife, Winifred, was in fourth wing 
very briefly in Fourth Wing, but she was noted that she was a wizard when it comes to different concoctions or po- not potions. That's definitely not the right word because she's not a witch, but like the the pain meds, basically. I'm not a witch. Violent. I'm your wife. I'm sorry. I had to. <laughs> we have to have at least one princess bride. But I do wonder if since Nolan was working on the Jack side of things, if the, there is no cure, there's only control. If Winifred has been working on the serum side of things when it comes to creating a concoction and this duo is just really something. That's very possible there. Yes. So we have to wonder if this missive is indeed years old, more than one year old, how did they control the venom then? Because we know now that the way that they control the venom is through the serum. So does that mean that it was previously around as they tried to figure out how to cure the venom? Or did they have a different way of controlling them? And that now this year is when they are able to successfully control them. Again, like this really makes me think that the missive is recent, which goes against everything I've thought this entire Iron Flame deep dive, because Nolan definitely is determined to try and cure Jack by mending his soul. He almost burns out like uh, consistently, like his stamina is next to nothing because he is so focused on trying to mend his soul. And it doesn't seem like this is something that happens regularly because he was obviously fine last year. If this is the case and the missive was sent to Lilith within recent months, does that mean Jack is indeed the first Venom they're experimenting on? I'm going to say first and only possibly. And they have no idea about the extent of the venom infiltration, as Jack has said. You are breaking my brain. (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) Everything I I I knew is a lie. I know. I'm so sorry about the second wing. (laughs) Now, again, this is we don't know this. I have no idea. But I'm just thinking logically about what we know about this missive in the epigraph and what we know about Nolan all of this year and what we know about the serum and what we know about Jack, too. Fuck, I think you're right. You think that he is talking specifically about Jack. They do not know about any other Venom in the Navarian borders. I think maybe like the whole like they do not know might be a bit of a stretch, but they are not actively experimenting on Venom like we have previously thought. I do think that'll change next book with yes. them having captured some after the battle. But fuck, I... I think you're right. I think you're right. Damn it. I I like I, we've been speculating this whole book that, you know, about all the possibilities with them experimenting and who's a venom and how they're controlling them and all of that, but yeah, I just don't know. I think you're 100% on the money here. Yep. And in that case, then that means that Nolan would have been promoted to colonel because of his success here with Jack. Or he was just addressed informally which I do agree I doubt that but if it was this recent possibly I do I could absolutely see Nolan getting promoted because of Jack's doing so well he's so nice now you cured his soul like I I I could totally see that but I also love the idea of it being an easter egg that it was much earlier on and that means that therefore this has been an ongoing thing well I was gonna say This is not the only exchange that they've had about this, clearly. So maybe this is just the most recent exchange they've had about this. And they've actually been writing for years now in regards to another. Maybe it's Violet. Maybe it was someone else. Like they've been in regards to someone else. And this is now a new level with Jack. So it's not necessarily either or. It can be both and. All right. I think we're so are we both in the same camp that it is both and. But this missive was recent about Jack. Are you in 
just it was recent and about Jack. Yes, I'm going to go with it was recent and about Jack specifically because of how focused Nolan is on trying to find the cure for Jack. The thing that turned me in this argument for that you just posed is the fact that Nolan wasn't burnt out prior to this. Like he was hunky dory, sprightly even last book. And it wasn't until his supposed possibly his wife created the serum and then he also burns out that he finally gives the like throwing his hands up in the air to Lilith of like there is no cure because they also knew Jack was a venom they knew the telltale signs and so I don't think that this is the first yes. time something like this has happened but it is the first time that they are experimenting and actively trying to mend someone's soul and realizing, nope, there is only control and that is where the serum plays into it. I hope Nolan, he's not going to survive next I week. mean, I, Zay- I ben, and Zayden's gonna have, that. ben and Zayden's going to have a field day tearing him apart. Fingernail uh, by fingernail. Delicious. Before we close out our Dawn, our Signet's part of this final chapter stretch of Iron Flame, it, oh, that made me so sad to say. Oh, so no. sad. We do have our gravity count. So like I mentioned earlier in this section, Violet has a that's gravity, right? Moment in relation to Zayden being alive. But in hindsight, we know that he's alive. But yes, definitely a venom. Hence the right. This is now the gravity count for the entire book. And remember, this is gravity only in mentions with Zayden and Violet together, not gravity in the dreamlike and all that kind of stuff since just Zayden and Violet. Eight total mentions and this is the only one that has a question mark which is deeply concerning (laughs) i'm really wondering if her second segment has something to do with gravity i I, no idea we have that episode next week and i I i'm terrified (laughs) i can't i have no idea what her second segment is like i'm really not in any one particular camp i'm not feeling particularly strong towards any of them i feel like i'm very argumentative against most of them (laughs) and like not trying to be like a pessimist but just like like logically and i don't But that's part of the fun. It's like, I have no idea. I have no idea. Luckily, we know there is one. So luckily, it's confirmed there is one. I will be curious next episode as we lay out all of the options, as we go through the pros and cons and the examples for each of them. It will be very interesting if we do find ourselves on a certain signet side. I do vote that by the end of that episode, you and I do a hierarchy of this is our first choice or first guess, second choice slash guess and third guess. Okay, we will do that. We will do our top three signet possibilities for each of us. I love it. We'll do that at the end of the episode. That's called foreshadowing, which speaking of which, (laughs) listeners, we have the foreshadowing section of this episode. There's not a lot because it's the end of the book and this is all speculation, actually. (laughs) And Darna's info download comes with Violet saying, I want you to tell me everything. But she also laments that her friends are dying. So they don't really have time for everything. So just give me like the cliff notes first right now so this i really do believe is foreshadowing and a promise to us readers for a major andarna download hopefully early in book three like thinking about i don't know how that would go for storytelling purposes like we still get like a little bit more sprinkled in so i'm gonna call it with a big andarna download it's kind of like the brennan download that we got at the beginning of this book exactly it's like okay that scratched my itch but that did not fix the whole problem and that is what this is going to be too because where's the fun in that? Brennan's download was a download et. It was not even a download. It was a download et. <laughs> it's a download that can fit in an email. <laughs> if Andarna's fucking download could have been an email, I will riot. 
Lilith mentions to Arik, aka Cam, that his father has been looking for him. And I do wonder if we're going to get more King Tari and Arik in next book. And if so, will the others find out who Arik is as a result? I just really want to read about how Sloane's eyes get really wide, like at that realization that her dear friend is the son of the man who, the king, who had her whole family executed and all, not her whole family, but you know, her parents executed. But side note, do you think Sloane and Arik have already hooked up? Because we know how incestuous the writer's quadrant is. And I gotta wonder. They are like brother and sister in my mind. And that was just ick. It just gave me the ick. (laughs) But I want to Eric. Like, geez, yeah. <laughs> Blue club tail, my yeah. <laughs> oh my god, that's oh my gosh, yeah. That's like when the guy pulls up like in a really awesome car, like for your first date or something, and it's like yes. And you're on like your cherry red moped, like or strawberry red moped. <laughs> I've never been in that situation in my entire life. <laughs> Oh my god. Okay, last foreshadowing moment. Violet saying to Taryn that she's reaching the final stages of burnout. And she says, you shouldn't have to lose two riders this way. Also, right after she talks about it, she understands why people would pull from the earth and thus turn Venom. If Naolin is in fact Venom because he resurrected Brennan and almost burned out as a result, boy oh boy would this be poetic because not only did Taryn almost lose two riders in the same way of reaching burnout, but she also considered channeling from the source. It is time to step into the archives one last time before we take a long archives break where each episode Lexi educates us all on a prominent world building topic from each stretch of chapters. And I should be clear, we're still doing archives section in our Akatar deep dives. It's just gonna be called something different. Again, that's called foreshadowing slash teasing friends. Today's archives topic is a cumulation of other discussions we've all had. And it's also a highly recommended one. I've been asking our listeners like, what do you want these last few archives to be? And this is one of the top options So here goes. It's the historical timeline of continent events. And I will say that I had some help from the Empyrean wiki for this one, because thankfully it already had the basic timeline for this foundation for today's archives. And I can't tell you how helpful that was for this really big episode. (laughs) All right. So first of all, we're going to use AU and BU for this timeline. AU means after unification and BU means before unification. So here goes. 17 BU, before the Great War, before unification, all of that. And Darna's egg is laid. We don't know when she was left behind by the other dragons in her den, but we can assume the reason was for activating the wards. So now we have the Great War, which happens after that. It's actually unknown exactly when this happened in BU. It was fought over six centuries ago, and it ended with the unification of Navarre. So the war was the first six, their forces and allies, versus the enemy General Daramore and his forces. Yes, the allies were the Isle Kingdoms. So we can guess that this was about 1 to 2 BU. Now, Lesson 1 BU, right before unification, a specific battle that was pivotal to winning the Great War was the Battle of Genfar. I'm so sorry, I can't pronounce that correctly. This battle was one of the final battles where dragons and griffins fought side by side together against the army of the barons. Now, in response to the Great War, dragons claimed the Western lands, which would become known as Navarre, Griffins the central ones, aka Pormiel, and everyone abandoned the barons because the venom sucked it dry of life. So, all right, cool. The Great War was right before unification, so now let's move into 1AU. 1AU is, of course, the unification of Navarre. The provinces of Luceris, 
Moraine, Elsom, Deaconshire, Tyrandor, and Caldir, they all unify to collectively become the Kingdom of Navarre. These six provinces united under the First Wards activating. This included unifying under one common language, which originated from Caldir. Not by coincidence, Caldir is also the capital of Navarre and where the king resides. The province's individual cultures, they were lost. They were essentially forgotten over the generations because part of all unifying together means you also create a big melting pot of one big culture. Tyrandor was notably the last to swear fealty. I wish I had a date on that, but I don't. So between 1 and 2 AU, it was the migration of the first year. Remember that Navarre allotted one year to open its borders and allowed those in what is now Poramil to live within the protection of the wards. But they were serious about that one year. Afterward, any Poramilian that attempted to cross the borders and get under the wards protection was turned away or killed, as we learn from Samara. Now let's fast forward a while. 233 AU is the beginning of the war with Poramil. This is the start of the 400 plus year war with the kingdom of Poramil. This is also approximately when all recorded Navarian history dates back to. So we know from the end of Fourth Wing and Violet's realization is that one generation wiped out any mention of Venon or Wyvern, erasing them from history so no one in Navarre knows of their existence. In 328 AU is the second Signy incursion. What the heck is that, you ask? It was a four-day skirmish that resulted in Signison being absorbed into the kingdom of Pormil. So Pormil had previously been the two provinces, and after this, then it became all three. And then before 434 AU, we have the Trade Agreement of Resin. It was signed more than 200 years ago from the events of our story. The Trade Agreement of Resin is the exchange of meat and lumber from Navarre for the cloth and agriculture within Poramil. This trade happens four times a year at the Athbane outpost on the border of Krovla and Tirandor. And then around that same year in 434 AU, we have the second Krovlan uprising. We know this was also roughly 200 years before Iron Flames events. Commanding generals of the riders and commanding general of the army, they used to be separate positions prior to the uprising. Afterward, the commander of the riders began commanding all of Navarre's military forces. So they also commanded the scribes, the infantry, and the healers as well, all under Navarre's military. Let's fast forward a few more centuries. We have in 627 AU, it's the beginning of the Tears Rebellion. This rebellion was, of course, led by Fen Ryerson, the head of Arisha and Tyrandor. Approximately a year later, on July 1st, 628 AU, we have the Battle of Arisha, the infamous battle here, which led to the end of the Tears Rebellion, which led to Reunification Day. The Battle of Arisha was the final battle where Navarre defeated Tyrandor and officially ended the rebellion. Brennan is killed, question mark, and resurrected during the battle. And Finn Ryerson was captured by General Sorengale. And an unknown amount of time later, I'm just going to throw out a guess that it's about two weeks later, the heads of Tirish noble homes who led the rebellion, they were all executed in Caldera. And this included, of course, Finn Ryerson. July 1st was proclaimed Reunification Day and is celebrated throughout Navarre every single year. It's a day to honor the lives lost during the war to save the kingdom from the rebels. That's how it all goes with historical events. I'm going to also pull out just another timeline here that's a lot shorter, but it relates to our characters and our story. So in 618 AU, Violet meets Dane. 
Yay! In 621 AU, Zayden's mother leaves. Womp womp. In 627 AU, Mira joins the Riders Quadrant and Brennan has graduated and becomes a lieutenant. In 628 AU, Violet, who's 14, she last sees Brennan prior to the Battle of Arisha, which is going to be on July 1st to 628. Mira is 21 at this time and she is in her second year at Biscayeth. In the summer of 628, Zayden and the other marked ones are sent to foster homes with the aristocratic families who stayed loyal to Navarre. We know not all of them were actually loyal to Navarre, but at least there was that front that was put on. We talked about that in a previous episode. And then approximately in 629 AU, a year later, Papa Sorengale begins having heart problems. And then in 630 or 631, Papa Sorengale dies. Violet is between 17 and 18 at this time. Mira is somewhere in the neighborhood of 23 or 24. And then in the same year is when Andarna hatches because it's after Violet turns 18. 631 AU is when Zayden enters the writer's quadrant. And two years later, Later, it is when the events of our story began, Fourth Wing. In 633 AU, soon before our story begins in Fourth Wing, in the beginning of that year in January or February, Violet begins training with Major Gilstead for the Writer's Quadrant under her mother's orders instead of continuing to train with Markham for the Scribehood. And then in mid-July, it is Violet's Conscription Day and the beginning of our story here. And don't worry, I am not going to keep going with the events of our story because today's episode is already really long and you all know what happens you can listen to nicole's battle briefs <laughs> and friendly reminder to all of our dragon writers you all have access to our outlines and this one especially i highly recommend checking out this is our dragon writers on our patreon and lexi has laid this out so freaking beautifully that look at it. look at it look <laughs> it looks so good <laughs> Thank you. Again, thank you, Empyrean Wiki. It's usually just like a tiny bit helpful, but this one was like, oh my God, he's just saved me hours of work. <laughs> that is one thing I'm looking forward to in the Prithian world because we have so much on the internet source material that we did not have with Fourth Wing when we first started this podcast. It's, it's wonderful because it's like good and bad because it's like when we do these outlines, we don't want to miss anything. No. And I like there's just too much out there to possibly include even like any it's gonna be like an iceberg where it's like what we're talking about and then it's like all the other stuff underneath so well that'll be that challenge instead oh I can't <laughs> wait let us finish this episode by taking flight with our favorite moments oh I'm getting so sentimental this is a sentence that just rips me open from the inside out Violet says to Indarna your scales aren't really black and Indarna says but he is and I want so badly to be just like him oh Oh, we love you, Taryn. You girl, dad, you. <laughs> I'm really going to miss Taryn. Like being in this world of curse, but I'm going to really miss the dragons. I'm going to miss him probably more than any other character, I think. I'm going to miss our curmudgeon of a dragon. I am too. When Andarna says to Violet, you are as unique as I am. We want the same things. They truly are so similar, so different from the others and so unique. This strengthens their already beautiful bond. And I think it really continues to set up Violet and Andarna's relationship to be more front and center in future books. We have talked a lot about how we were a little bit sad that Andarna wasn't in Iron Flame very much, of course, especially until the big reveal here. But there was a reason for that. She was in the dreamless sleep. Well, now she's out of it. She's learning how to fly. She's the seventh dragon breed. There's a lot of information here. So I think that she's going to get a lot more page time in future books. 
Oh, yeah. And then on the same note about how they are so similar and there are those parallels between them. Violet is supposedly weak, but she's always overcoming that. Same with Andarna. Her wing hasn't grown properly and she's working to overcome that. And neither of them let what they're told they can't do actually stop them. I just I can't wait for what's to come with these two. Violet has to ride Andarna like they have to overcome this together. There's no way that doesn't happen. I don't think it's going to be until like book five, but there's no way that doesn't happen. I don't know. I thought a lot of stuff wouldn't happen until book five and it ended up happening in book two. So I'm about to get my ass handed to me, (laughs) but I definitely think it's going to happen. And to close this out, I can't believe this is the last point I'm making, but it is. Here we are in Zayden's POV. He says, quote, satisfaction courses through me in a high better than Churum. Friendly reminder for those of you who don't remember, Churum is basically the equivalent of marijuana in this world. And there was a question in the video interview with Rebecca Yaros on Entertainment Weekly and someone asked if Zayden is going to just smoke a bunch of churum next book to make his eyes red and also take the edge off of him needing to take from the source. And I think that's fucking hilarious. Wait, I need to know what Rebecca said and answered. What did she say? I think it was during her like pass or maybe or like whatever. And I think she said pass. So that to me was a confirmation that it's going to happen. I love how out of all of our social media posts, out of everything we've ever posted, the only thing that has ever been taken down was TikTok taking down our Snoop Dogg (laughs) meme (laughs) because it was in reference to drugs. But the vibrators were fine. (laughs) Oh, man. That's funny what you pick up there, TikTok. Anyway, <laughs> that's a wrap. That is a wrap, friends, on our Iron Flame book deep dive. But don't worry. We have one more Iron Flame episode for you, which is coming out next week, next Monday, before we transition to A Court of Thorns and Roses. Next Monday, February 19th, we are dropping our final Iron Flame episode. It'll cover Violet's second signet possibilities. Nicole and I are going to do our top three Violet second signet rankings. And then, friends, that is when we are officially moving on to A Court of Thorns and Roses. We're kicking it off with chapters one through five on Monday, February 26th. Now, a friendly reminder, we've had this question a lot, that when we start our Akatar coverage, we will have spoilers for the whole series from the first episode. There are five Akatar books, kind of four and a half. One four of them half, is a yeah. novella. You'll get through it really fast. It doesn't matter that much. It's we will not be pulling special. much from that. Yeah, it's like a Christmas special. Don't worry about that one. You know how our deep dives go. It's just that much better when we can freely talk about the entire series and Akatar is no exception. However, don't worry if you haven't read Sarah J. Mass's other series, including Throne of Glass or Crescent City. Our Akatar deep dives will be spoiler free of those series, except for an occasional mass verse section at the end of some, only the applicable episodes, where we promise to give a major spoiler warning for anyone who hasn't finished the other series so that you can finish off your part of the episode and then anyone who has finished the other series, they can listen for those last 15 or so minutes where we do include other parts of the mass verse. Last little note on our ACOTAR coverage here coming up, we are releasing our ACOTAR intro episode on February 22nd, where we'll discuss in detail how the format and spoilers will work. I know it was a little bit confusing how I was just saying all of that. So you know exactly what to expect heading into it. I've just got chills hearing you talk about Akatar. I cannot believe we made it. Wow. Here we are. Remember when we were talking about this and mapping it out in September and it was just like, wow, 
It felt like, like, ah, man. It was a different lifetime ago. Literally, like our lives have changed so much. I'm so exciting. But also a reminder that we will absolutely cover Empyrean book three when it releases. And we will be producing more content with predictions, some teaser analysis, just like we did in the lead up to Iron Flame. And we will definitely do more before the book is released as we all get really excited and really hyped up for book three whenever that does come out whenever. We're all waiting with bated breath, friends. Thank you, as always, to our executive producer, Hayden, aka our sanity manager. We love ya. And if you want more Fantasy Fangirls content and community, please go ahead, join the Patreon party. We are thrilled to now be eligible for annual memberships. So if you know you're sticking around through ACOTAR, become an annual Patreon member and get a few months for free. You know the drill, friends. If you aren't following us on TikTok or Instagram, what are you doing? Give us a follow at Fantasy Fangirls Pod. We have our February calendar so you can understand everything that I just said with all those dates. We will definitely be sharing a little bit more Empyrean coverage as we transition over to Akatar. We will share some of those like teasers whenever Rebecca Yaros drops anything. So if you want more Empyrean content, we will have a little bit more, but we will definitely be moving into Akatar very, very soon. We got Akatar memes for days, friends. Let me tell you. <laughs> Please do not forget to rate and review this podcast. This is one of the reasons this podcast has grown so quickly, so fast, is because you all have taken the three seconds that it does take to hit that five-star button on whatever podcast platform you are listening on. If, however, you're watching on YouTube, you can hit the like and subscribe button on this video. It is so helpful for us for getting the word out there for more people, to having new people find the show. We can't believe how many people find the show on a weekly basis for the first time. It makes us happy. And speaking of which, last but not least, share this episode with your fellow friends who are also emotionally destroyed by Iron Flame and they now want some completion. And they're like, I didn't want to start a podcast that's not complete, just like the book that was not complete. And I was, nah, 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 nah. You can now send them this entire podcast, which is now, at least for the time being, complete with the Empyrean deep dives. But don't forget, we do have Violet Second Signet next week. All right. We love you all so much. I just can't say that enough. Like, I don't even want to get off the air right now because I'm so happy and I love you all so much. But we have to at some point. Poor Nicole in editing this episode. I feel for you, for all of you listening. If you're still listening to me right now, you are a real true fan and I love you so much. I just want to say really quickly, and I'll do my like farewell letter next week, but... Thank you so much to every single one of you who have made Lexi and I's lives do a complete 180 in the best way possible that we never even imagined, thanks to these magical worlds that we love and cherish so deeply. And just, you all have changed our lives and made our dreams come true. And we have no idea how to thank you other than to continue making content for the rest of our days. (laughs) We love you, friends. We'll see you next week. Bye. Merch. We are back. We're off to a good start. Daddy. With another daddy. Hold on. I knew that this was a general. I am in the middle of battle brief now. (laughs) Just say. But for vite. Next point. I'm going to murder your cursor. Sorry. (laughs) We like each other. We promise. What am I saying?
was something I wanted to say. I was gonna be like, did you freeze? This is a feisty today. We are feisty today. I mean, I can write a eulogy for her if you really want me to. No, you're doing a great job. There's no eulogy needed. I love you. I love you too. I'm sorry I got feisty. Pure furry, furry. I'm losing it. On July 1st, 228. Sorry, there's so many numbers. That's good. You're doing great. Oh my god, we're getting loopy after 26,000 hours of recording this podcast.